0: Good evening. This is Tribal Theocrat Live, episode 31. It's October 5th, 2013. I'm Christian Gray. Reminder to join the chat room at tribaltheocrat.com and click the chat button at the top and you can participate and ask questions for our guests. Another reminder, there will be two more shows and that's it, at least for me. Our guest tonight is a return engagement. He's been on a few times, And tonight will be a two-hour plus show he was on a few weeks ago to talk about intelligence and special operations but we didn't get through the material so we're back here to talk about special ops and we'll have to get through the material for sure because this is the last time we'll be able to do this so Robert welcome to the show again thank you well I'm ready to go I'm excited about this I've been looking forward to this for a long time
1: the yeah it actually uh, worked out pretty well that uh, we had the delay because i was able to go back in and revamp um, a lot of what i'd written i think i made it uh, tighter and um, had more definition where it needed it and uh, yeah. i was able to edit down in other areas so it really worked out well but uh Unfortunately, the show tonight's interfering with me, uh, keeping track of what college football team is beating who. And, you know, I kind of know those kinds of things to be able to talk to the mouth breathers during yeah. the week. So, uh,
2: <laughs>
1: I'm sure at your church too, that, you know, that's the key to, uh, getting power and social accessibility is your knowledge of NFL scores and, uh, and statistics.
0: Yes. Yeah. You, you have to know about that stuff or you're just not. You're not a Christian. You're not
1: a fan. <laughs> And It's a shame it's come to that, but uh, getting on to it, since it is going to be kind of a lengthy show. Yeah. Um, but tonight's topic is centered uh, on special operations and a theological critique and analysis of special operations units, as well as a uh, theological critique and analysis of the, of the intelligence and surveillance states. And a small diatribe about COPs and how they have been made worse by the growth of Special Operations Units. Well, back on the uh, August 17th show, and that's for the year 2013 if anyone's listening to this in a few years in the future, we discussed several different intelligence organizations within the U.S. government and the U.S. military as well as similar agencies for the United Kingdom and Israel. Uh, I discussed the special operations units for the United Kingdom, the British Army Special Air Service and the British Royal Marine Special Boat Service towards the end of my first talk. I combined them with a section about the UK's version of the National Security Agency, which is the General Communication Headquarters, and their version of the CIA, which is the Secret Intelligence Service, also called MI6. And before I um, We get on, let me touch on a couple of points or articles that have popped up since the August 17th talk, which I think are pretty important. The Washington Post published an article on the 29th of August titled The Black Budget, and that's just the name of the article, The Black Budget, which showed the breakdown of intelligence agency budgets. The article shows that the top three intel agencies are the National Security Agency the CIA, and the National Reconnaissance, all three of which I covered fairly in-depth in the first talk. Another article worth checking out is Edwards, uh, the Edward Snowden-inspired article at The Guardian, which is a U.K. newspaper. The title of the article is, NSA Shares Raw Intelligence, Including America's uh, Americans' Data with Israel, and that appeared on September 11th. <clears throat> well, for to get on into the talk, in case anyone's curious, the reason I'm not going to talk about the Special Operations Forces first is, in case anyone here is a uh, listening as a, as a wannabe and just wants to find out the name of the units, <clears throat> excuse me, and then go uh, talk to their buddies and try to impress them. I want—I actually prefer people listen to the, the solutions. So, and I think it's the most important part of the talk. So, we'll deal with the solutions in the first hour, and then the second hour we'll look at the actual units itself. So, having said that. Um, here's a few quotes to help convey the idea of what kind of problem we're we're dealing with. Um, this is the first one is a pretty shocking statement from a former SEAL named Brandon Webb. He wrote a book uh, titled The Red Circle: My Life in the Navy SEAL Sniper Corps and How I Trained America's Deadliest Marksmanship. And this was concerning the rules of engagement for the invasion of Afghanistan. This was pretty early on in the Afghan conflict in 2001-2002. Uh, I quote, the rules of engagement seem to boil down to this. You see any dark-skinned male of fighting age, i.e. 15 years or older, and you're cleared to engage. And that's page 244. This isn't the result of bad intelligence, the rules of engagement. This was purposely fabricated false intelligence. And the evil moronic trigger pullers were more than happy to not question the preposterous intelligence estimate, which led to the wicked rules of engagement. Also from page 244, and I also believe uh, 245 as well, I quote, We got the general impression that there were Taliban and al-Qaeda running around everywhere, and it was often difficult to know who was who and who was on which side. Some of these tribal leaders were smart fuckers too, and they knew how to take advantage of our own lack of clear orientation. They would tell coalition forces, Those guys over there across that bridge are Taliban, and then U.S. troops would go wipe out those guys over there across that bridge, only to learn later that they had just wiped out a rival warlord that the first guys had been battling for decades, and it had nothing whatsoever to do with al-Qaeda or Taliban, end of quote. Uh, By the way, Chris Kyle, the now-deceased ex-SEAL sniper in Iraq, was a student of Brandon Webb for SEAL sniper training. And you'll find actually quite a few connections like that between different um people in special forces, particular special operations, particularly SEALs that write books. The next is a um that deals with Delta Forces' involvement in the butchering of the branch Davidians at Waco, Texas, back in April of nineteen ninety-three. Here's an extract from an article by Jennifer Autry, which appeared in the Fort Worth Star Telegram entitled Military's Forces Role in Waco Challenged. I quote again. Stephen Barry, a retired Special Forces Sergeant First Class, and by the way, he was a publisher of an alternative news media magazine called The Resistor. Uh, Stephen Barry gave a sworn affidavit to plaintiff's attorneys in a civil suit brought by families of dead Branch Davidians. Barry said a non-commissioned officer from Delta Force told him that the Delta Force's B Squadron had been ordered to take down the Branch Davidians at Mount Carmel. Barry said he understood from his experience in the special forces that take down meant to kill people identified as terrorists. The unit set up a tactical operations center during the siege that was staffed by 10 to 20 soldiers. In the last of my lengthy quotes, here's what a a basic army soldier had to say about uh, three different special operations groups in Iraq, and this was from Soldier of Fortune magazine in July of 2005. Ken Miller, a um, man who wrote a book called Tiger, the Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol Dog, but Ken Miller recently uh, wrote to Soldier of Fortune that he had spent time with an E-4 cavalry scout just back from Iraq after a tour with the 1st Cavalry Division. His specific unit worked with the SEAL team, Delta Force, and 5th Special Forces Group. His entire squadron loathed the SEALs and who came in driving dark and conspicuously intimidating vehicles that looked like something that The crew at Pimp My Ride had customized for Darth Vader. They were arrogant and contemptuous of everyone who wasn't a SEAL, even to the point of cutting in lines in the PX, and they were very trigger-happy. At one point, they were working in his squadron sector in Baghdad, trying to sneak around in the city, and of course someone saw them, as someone is bound to do when a group of men is making a big show sneaking around a city where people actually live. When the SEALs realized they had been uh, seen and felt themselves compromised, they opened fire 360 degrees and killed a civilian, wounded another, and considered these legitimate kills. This was a sector that 1-7, his cavalry unit, worked in regularly, and they had very good relations with the residents until the SEALs came along. The Delta Force folks were slightly aloof, but not out of any personal need to be superior, just because they couldn't talk in detail about what they were up to. And the special forces guys, the uh, cavalry men, ac- absolutely loved the green berets. Were incredibly competent and knowledgeable, and very willing to share what they knew. The Iraqis seemed to really trust them. <clears throat> so that gives a little bit of an overview of you know what we're what we're dealing with, and that there actually are sizable un- uh, differences in the different special forces units. Well, on to Section 1 of our analysis, this is kind of the uh, lower-scale, you know, personal-level analysis, not so much the historical perspective. If you take fear and atheism and idolatry of the state, they all drive the need for out-of-control intelligence agencies, large-standing armies, and a plethora of special operations forces. If you fear dying more than anything else, then a person will probably embrace a pact with the devil to add a few more years to their lives. And the unbeliever should have a healthy respect to dying, so fundamentally our, uh, the gospel is our starting place to try to deal with this problem. Also, due to total depravity or its weaker Roman Catholic cousin, original sin, attempts to fight an evil like communism or ill-defined terrorism of the police state or an intel state or a massive military-industrial complex will frequently result in a greater evil than the evil which was to be originally resisted. And you see that time and time again. I think one historian uh, gave the description for such a situation in which the cure was worse than the disease. But other than one's beliefs about God and morality, many things um, I see guiding the conflict, the conduct of special operations units comes down to the differences in the military branches and the differences in the units and their missions. You can break this down further into concrete terms with criteria such as masochism and sadism, top submissions typically performed, pettiness of unit and military branch policies, um, such as leave and vacation policies, as well as capriciousness or unfairness in training and various other policies, quality of life and quality of base facilities, potential for living better, how the officer corps treats the enlisted caste, Weekend downtime, training time, and deployment schedules, and lastly, ability to be promoted into other slots outside of the special operations world. Now, out of those eight things, the, the Navy SEAL units and the Marine Corps score among the lowest on the list, and the Air Force special operations units score among the highest. And generally, the people in Air Force Spec Ops or the Army Special Forces are generally the less sadistic less bloodthirsty and less immoral than those in the Navy or the Marine Corps. One example that stands out was uh, on a survey uh, administered several years ago about the use of torture during interrogations, and a considerably higher percentage of people in the Army were opposed to it rather than the Marines or the SEALs. How about the types of missions that are performed, um, since that was one of the categories that I was saying? Well, that brings up the question of of direct action missions. What is a a direct action mission? You hear this mentioned quite often. An example of a a classical direct action mission would be the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Pakistan back in 2011. And for the record, I don't think Osama bin Laden was in that compound. I think he died in the earlier part of of the 21st century. So I'm not sure who it was that was killed there. But that would be a classical example of a direct action mission. Pretty much all special operations forces can engage in direct action missions, although some units are much more focused on that sort of mission than others. Those that are not focused on direct action missions seem to be more civilized. The SEALs, though, on the other hand, are heavily focused on direct action missions, whereas, say, the Army Special Forces particularly back during the Cold War, were more focused on unconventional warfare than direct action. Air Force units cannot even engage in direct action missions in and of themselves. They have to be embedded in an Army or Navy special operations unit. Well, let's look at the issue of sadism and masochism as well as, as hazing. This is a major issue within the ranks of those in special operations units, and when it comes to sadism, it is especially manifest in the training cadre, with SEAL instructors at Buds being the worst. And Buds, that's, uh, spelled B-U-D slash S. That stands for Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL. At one time, in the Navy, you had, uh, underwater demolition teams and you had SEAL teams and they were separate.
0: Is that at what Jesse point, Ventura did? Oh, pardon? It, wasn't Jesse Ventura one of those guys?
1: Yeah, he was a SEAL. Um, oh, okay. I don't think he, I don't think he was an underwater demolition okay. guy first. Gotcha. Some of them did take that route, though, where they would go underwater demolition and then eventually become a seal. so but I would say Jesse Ventura is probably one of the best well known of the uh, of the seals, and yeah he was in the you know, brownwater navy in Vietnam, doing raids up and down the Mekong Delta I'm glad you gave me a little break there. I had to get some water. This isn't, by the way, hate the Navy weekend, um, but since a lot of the Navy Special Operations Forces are probably the most anti-Christian in their actions, and because they ex-Seals have written so many books, that we know a lot about them, and so they're going to receive more scrutiny than other people, than other groups. the The buds training which the Seals go through is custom designed for masochists. The bud the buds instructors are are really really sadistic. And their mission is direct action and orientation, so, you know, their main thing is attacking and, and killing people, not necessarily so much, you know, rescue or training, um, rebel forces. This is really the worst of both worlds in a special operations unit. When you take SEAL Team 6, which was the actual unit which did the, the hit on Osama bin Laden's compound, they are the a counter-terrorist force operating among the SEAL teams. But they have their own selection course, where a number of normal seals would apply. Well, they put them through the selection course and accept only certain ones. So, and it's a, a pretty, it's a, a lot of the material in that course is really petty, and so it it tends once again to attract uh, masochists that are willing to allow themselves to be ha- hassled quite a bit. And SEAL Team Six is even more focused on direct action missions than regular SEALs. And you contrast what the SEALs go through with, say, for Delta Force. And the training cadre at Delta Force, they they don't scream at you at all. They just sit there and make sure that no one cheats and record the times for completion of the various tasks. And those who've craved a structured environment in the past have a much harder time with Delta Force selection. So they tend to attract more independent thinkers, although obviously not independent enough or ethical enough. But still, there is a difference between the units. Masochists frequently also um become sadists, or, or they're already sadists. And not to understate the obvious, but the wicked and disturbed are attracted to masochism and sadism. The masochism and sadism in the SEAL community are contradictory to Christianity, so consequently a, a pathetic religion or philosophy of life has risen to replace it. This was very apparent in Richard Marcinko's book, Rogue Warrior, and Brandon Webb's previously mentioned book, The Red Circle, is a philosophy based on optimism, masochism, obedience, hard work, and being mindlessly driven. In other words, a a type of mindless humanism that you might find somewhat similar to what Zig Ziglar and, and various sales philosophies emphasize. While special operations training should create a degree of stress and not be easy to complete, Nevertheless, there are limits before a thinking person will realize that they are participating in something that emphasizes pain just for the sake of generating pain. Uh, Consequently, groups like the SEALs aren't really noted for being a brain trust, whereas the special forces, the Army special forces of the Vietnam era and up through the 1980s was considered to be have some of the smartest enlisted men in any branch of the military. Furthermore, the special forces of that era heavily emphasized foreign language training unconventional warfare, and we're seeing as having a, um, a strategic element of some, uh, some sort because if we'd had war with the Soviet Union, in all likelihood you would have seen special forces at some point being involved in training up, say, Polish rebels or Czech rebels, and the SEALs really are never involved in that kind of uh, training of rebel forces. When your training system attracts sadistic instructors and you weed out all but the most masochistic trainees, then you're in a really bad situation because of the people you're left with, they act like robots and they follow orders blindly and don't question anything. If they're not going to question seven months of cruel selection training, they're not going to question a whole lot in life. You know, orders to, to kill people who, oh, because they're males of, of possibly, you know, combat age living in Afghanistan. Now, let me scan down to the next section. This was a really good quote from a Vietnam vet and a West Point alumnus who went through ranger training, uh, ranger school back in the Vietnam War era. His uh, name is John Reed. You can find his com- these comments on his website. Since depriving students of food and sleep is the main focus of ranger school, I suspect the two digit IQ types who run such army schools will have no interest in teaching tactics where sleep and food deprivation are irrelevant. The rationale behind depriving students of food and sleep is that you, when you operate behind enemy lines, you can only carry limited food and you have to move only at night. Actually, you're supposed to sleep during the daylight, but they sort of forget, uh, sort of forget about that. Urban police stop patrolling in places like Iraq and vehicle-mounted patrolling in Afghanistan's mountains and villages has no food or sleep deprivation component. That means for such tactics, ranger instructors would actually have to instruct rather than mostly harass and torment. No fun for them. Consequently, no such school is going to happen. <clears throat> A lot of um, what drives some of my material or thoughts on masochism and, stati- and sadism, to come from R.J. Rushdooney's book, Politics of Guilt and Pity. And I, I think it's probably his most important book, in my opinion, although he's better known for his Institutes of Biblical Law. But I think Politics of Guilt and Pity is more insightful. Here's a, a couple of quotes from that book that I think helped you know, really frame the discussion on sadism and masochism. Life of guilty man is covered by his, this demand for atonement and is, in fact, dominated by it. A common resource is is to self atonement and self justification. A modern term for such behavior is masochism in the broader sense of that term. The narrow sense refers to a sexual offense in which the sin and is a license to the sin. In the broader sense, masochism is self punishment as atonement for sin in order to cleanse the consciousness of guilt. A form of activity formerly closely related to masochism and having identical roots and some would call it a form of masochism, is sadism. In sadism, self-punishment involves also a transfer of guilt to an innocent party. You can think about how the Jews uh, had those uh, parades, I don't remember what, uh, what holy day of theirs it is, but where they wave the chickens above the head, their head. That's where they're transferring their guilt or their sin into a, an innocent party. But it is a form of revenge against, sadism sadism is a form of revenge against the innocent for their innocence in an attempt to reduce them to the same level of impotence and guilt. David prayed, keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent man who have purposed to overthrow my goings. That was Psalm 144. One more paragraph from Rushdeny. Some men go to great expense and pains to seduce a virgin or a faithful wife whom they actually dislike for only one reason, to humble them, to destroy their offensive innocence. A form of self-justification is thus the reduction of the world to the sinner's level. Some patients, some parents, pardon me, will both indulge flagrantly and then punish savagely Their children, as they alternate between a mood of longing for the triumph of self-indulgence and resentment that anyone can escape the punishment when they cannot. When a parent handles his child badly, it usually means he's handling himself badly. And somewhat related to the subject of envy, which figures into sadism and masochism as well, is the issue of envy. And for those who would like to know more about envy, they need to listen to Mickey Henry's talk on tribal theocrat from september 21st now on the go ahead
0: i was that was just saying that was a great show
1: oh it uh, really was you know it's a topic that's never talked about in churches
0: outstanding if you need to get a drink of water or moonshine you go right right ahead
1: (laughs) thank you i just i just did Um, appreciate the break yeah um another quote from Brandon Webb's book, The Red Circle, which pertains to the topic of hazing, that he had gotten married, and normally they hazed newly married enlisted men in the SEAL teams. So he lied about getting married, and then his platoon found out about it, so they got him even worse. From page 164 of his book, when they finally got around to hazing him, it started with him being taped up and ice poured on him, then progressed to being forced to drink about a half a bottle of cheap tequila. Detonating wires from a detonating machine were connected to his nipples, then Tabasco sauce was poured onto his reproductive organs. And at this point, a petty officer cuts off some of his pubic hairs and attaches it to Webb's face using spray-on-glue. And then he goes on again 15 pages later, and this isn't so much an issue of uh, hazing, but kind of a a bizarre masochism, which probably could lead to hazing if you didn't capitulate to it. But it was while he was at sniping school, and he talks about um, their little game they played called Rock Duel. You each face off 20 yards, perform an about-face, then shoot a rock-paper-scissors to determine who goes first. The winner proceeds to chuck a well aimed baseball-sized rock at the other person, no headshots, who is forbidden to move or even flinch and stand as still as possible, hoping for a miss so he can have his turn. The first guy to score a kill shot is declared the winner, and the next two guys take their place and have a go. It was a great stress reliever. You know, this is just, you know, it's mindless stupidity at its worst, and yet these are people who are basically given a green light to, you know, make life and death decisions in, in Iraq and Afghanistan on, you know, who is an enemy, who should be killed, who should not be. And there's a, another seal, I believe ex seal now, named Chad Williams, and he wrote a book called Seal of God. And This talks about a, an attack or a vicious hazing he suffered at the hands of fellow SEALs after becoming a Christian while on a training trip in Mississippi. And this is from page two hundred nine of his book. Um, well, I'm sorry, actually, I didn't have any excerpts from it, but it was it was a bad attack. I remember the uh, Naval Criminal Investigation Service, the NCIS, investigated, it, but couldn't get anyone willing to testify because the SEALs, just like the Mafia, has their own code of omersha. Is that how it's said?
0: Uh, let me see. You say Immersia?
1: Yeah, I think that's how it's pronounced. Where yeah. they will never rat each other out. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the blacks have the same thing too.
0: Yeah, I've. Uh, I can't seem to find the word where I need to. Okay. Anyhow. But
1: you find you know too as well, and the issue of of hazing and uh, sadism in the. Uh, future officers that attend West Point or the Naval Academy or uh, Annapolis, or the Naval Academy at Annapolis, or the Air Force Academy, where the first two years they're hazed relentlessly by sadistic uh, upperclassmen. Then, when they become upperclassmen, they're expe- expected to turn into sadists and administer the same hazing that they got the first two years. And this really has an effect of producing a type of officer who blindly follows orders. There's a um, you know, in addition to the military academies, you've got kind of these tier one ROTC schools like the Citadel, or Virginia Military Institute, or the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M. <clears throat> and generally, overall, they they turn out uh, most people consider a, a better officer, but they have still a lot of the same hazing that goes on. And I think it, you know, ultimately it it, it tends to create a person who's who's far too obedient. That if you were to take the people. That would put up with you know three or four weeks of mistreatment and say, well, heck, I'm I'm quitting. I don't want to do this anymore. To me, that would make a far better officer than the person that sits around and tolerates it for two years, and then becomes a sadist himself the last two years, because they've already compromised their ability to be you know Christian men of where you know you don't subject yourself like that, and then you don't go around subjecting other people to that. He also thinks uh, this uh, individual, Jacob Hornberger, who uh, writes at the Future for Freedom Foundation, he thinks that West Point and the the different uh, federal military academies have a real problem as well, too, because most of the people there have to have, well, all of them do, have to have a an appointment from a congressman. So they tend to come from families that curry favor with congressmen. I didn't really see that so much out of the people I knew who went to federal military academies there were six people my brother and I knew from our high school who ended up going to either the Air Force Academy the Naval Academy or the uh um, or, or West Point what they all had in common though is they tended to be unoriginal in their thinking uh grade grubbers very much conformist groupthink and they were rule rule followers And so, you know, these would be the worst people you would really want as as being officers. And so they, but they got picked for it. And the two from my class didn't even make it out. They uh, ended up quitting their first summer, which actually shows that they actually did have, you know, some degree of sense. Well, aside from sadism and and, um, masochism, there's the issue of hyper-masculinity and the religion of false masculinity. We see all these uh, particularly in an age in which the church is, is you basically abandoned the masculine male, that we see all these unsophisticated macho men around us. They uh, drive pickups even if they never need one. They're football fanatics. All they'll ever eat is meat and potatoes. They hate vegetables. They love war and the military. They they embrace you know sort of a meanness towards other people. They're usually unloving, uh, harsh fathers. Hate animals with the possible exception of dogs. Engage in serial fornication, boozing. They love flashing money. I mean, particularly blacks. Blacks love to flash money a lot. And they have excessive pride in anti-intellectualism. And the, the religion of false masculinity is very common amongst unsaved men, particularly in smaller towns, that they're not really from the, uh, you know, from the elite levels of society, although they have their own type of false masculinity as well the stanford prison stanford university prison experiment i think is something everyone should look up and read about at some point of what happens when you give every everyday guys put them in a prison environment as either guards or as prisoners and see what happens to them but you really don't want especially hyper masculine men getting into a so-called neutral organization like a prison because that's what happened in the stanford prison experiment of where you had these People who are just normal workaday Joes, not really um, overly bad or overly good. But when you put them in the position of having the power of in a prison, well, they turned into monsters. Well, since masculine Christianity has not existed for a very, very long time, there is a crisis in masculinity. There is going to be masculinity, obviously, so the question is whether or not it will be a Christian masculinity. Right now, we have a sort of churchian masculinity, which in turn has produced a a vile, sadistic masculinity as a counterpart to it in the culture. Now, obviously, neither one are getting the job done. The hyper-masculine culture tends to, as I said, it loves the military, and in particular, it really just idolizes special operations soldiers. And special operations soldiers are very much into the religion of masculinity themselves, as are policemen. Uh, it's the perverted, uh, masculinity again. The fact, too, that the West is, is currently a matriarchy or a gynocracy where it's basically a rule of women, that, that has the bad effect of driving men into hypermasculinity as well as associating with jobs and activities that are considered hypermasculine. Once again, we have the military, the police, watching football, playing football. If you're in high school, these are you know, considered you know uber macho man type things to do. And even Freemasonry was driven in part by the gynocracy, which was expanding and has been growing since the 1700s, particularly in the church. So the trend was is that women had the church and men had the Masonic lodge. Unfortunately, really, white men at this point in time no longer we no longer have a world of our own because of the of the gynocracy and the matriarchy. And then you know well, that's not in play. It's an issue of blacks or Jews or someone else invading our social institutions. Well, the growing plethora of special operations units. When we get to that section, we'll see. There's just you know, there are a ton of different units as well as the number of people in them that there's, uh, say, like with the Army Special Forces or Green Berets, there's several thousand Green Berets. There's just a large number of them. But this has had the effect of making, helping to make SWAT teams in police forces ubiquitous, which they hardly existed prior to the 1970s, which is when the Los Angeles Police Department created their uh, first SWAT team. Then you have the growing militarization of the police, which we can see from their uniforms and the growing uh, adoptions of armored personnel carriers and other uh, heavily armored vehicles. Didn't you just um, recently buy a copy or a Kindle copy of a book called Rise of the Warrior Cop by Radley Balco?
0: Sure did. I love it. Well,
1: what are your thoughts on it?
0: It's it's, it's a really good book. I have not quite finished it. I'm halfway through it, but there is – there's a, something on every page you want to underline and go back and, and just, if not memorize, um, take it in. It, it's, a, it's a good book. He starts out from the beginning and talks about how, constitutionally speaking, our forefathers wouldn't have even recognized what we have today. In fact, the Third Amendment would um, have precluded what we have now, which is basically military on the streets.
1: Yeah, you think about I uh, Was it Indianapolis that I think recently got a, a large, mm. heavily, you know, so some sort of armored vehicle, I thought.
0: I think it was um, someplace in Ohio. They've done that in a couple cities. Yeah.
1: yeah. I know in Texas, even places like. Um, Tyler, Texas, or Midland, which are not, you know, the, the major metropolitan areas that they have picked up um, fairly heavily armored vehicles themselves, and of course, the you know, sheriffs um, or the chief of police is more than happy uh, to get those kinds of vehicles. It's something in terms of hazing that we've seen pop up, uh, particularly with the NYPD, with some of the people that they will capture or they engage in anal hazing. And, uh, kind of like a a lower level form of sodomy. And this is happening as well amongst, um, particularly in high schools and the athletic departments. But to see, you know, the cops who very much have a lot of these issues with sadism and masochism themselves, for them to go around hazing people, wanting to destroy or bring other people down to their level, it's it's pretty bad stuff. Disgusting. I think it's, you you know, not to go off on a tangent on the cops issue again, but, you yeah, know, that book, I think, um, you know, let me scroll back up to where I had the title of it, Rise of the Warrior Cop by Radley Balco. I mean, it's probably, you know, one of the most important books written uh, in the last few years on um, from what you're saying in terms of an issue that's of such grave importance for us.
0: It is really an outstanding book. I recommend it and it's making its way through the, the national um, media circuit. People are picking, uh, uh cops are reviewing it. Um, non-cops are reviewing it and of course cops don't like it, but it's a, he's going on a tour now from different universities, different cities and signing, giving speaking engagement and signing books. And he's trying to make it as big a thing as possible. And I think it's like you said, one of the greatest books to have come out on the subject in the last couple years and where we are right now with the growth of the military police state, we need this kind of book and we need this public discussion.
1: It's always fun to go on uh, the to Amazon to, you know, you read the book reviews for a topic. So if it's like about cops, you know, a negative opinion of cops, you can look at all the one-star reviews and you know it's going to be written by either policemen or, or cop groupies. And, you know, just, you know, it'll all be nothing but a bunch of, of swearing or, or, you know, misspelled words and poor English. And, uh, you know, it's actually fun, you know, kind of fun to me to read a few of those one-star reviews and, it's kind of enlightening, I think, too, of of you know what policemen are actually like. I, I like doing that too in books about Jews and Judaism, where you look at all the one star reviews you get yeah. on there, and it's you know every other word is Holocaust this and yeah. you know this man is worse than Hitler. And <laughs> <laughs> this uh,
0: this this book should not be sold on Amazon, and yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah, typical type of stuff, and, and you know, most of the time is with like a lot of the negative cop reviews of of anti cop books. The cops haven't even read the book; they just you know heard about. It. And you know, I'm gonna put a, you know post a negative review uh, yeah. on. It. Well, somewhat along the line to the subject of envy is the issue of Gnosticism, which uh, those of us who've read Rush Dooney's publications and or other reform publications know that Gnosticism was a problem in the early church, but still very much with us where people have a, a lust for secret knowledge. And you see this um, uh, kind of a non form of Gnosticism amongst people who are in SEAL Team 6 or Delta Force concerning those who used to be in SEAL Team 6 or Delta Force who come out and write books discussing their experiences in those units. They're they're hated in part because they are considered to be uh, breaking the cult's secret presence, so they're demystifying it, and by doing so, they're making their secret knowledge less secret, and so they are really hated um, a, a book, which I'm going to mention at the end in the bibliography section, written by Eric Haney called Inside Delta Force, and he's um, he was a founding member of the unit and got out of the army in 1990, a very even-keeled type of person but the you know a lot of people in Delta Force hate his guts for him writing that book about it and it wasn't really an exposé it was just kind of like well here's what we did here's our training here's what we did um but yeah i mean he's persona non grata amongst them now something else um that you'll see amongst a lot of organizations that are off balance Will be bizarre looks, and uh, we can think of the police and how they love, you know, shaved head or buzz cuts. Uh, there was a video you and I were discussing earlier in the week uh, about these open carry uh, women. I think they call themselves open carry chicks, and they were in Missouri being grilled at this Walmart by uh, two or three cops who had uh, one of them had an AR-15 there to confront them. And every one of them had, you know, the the either no hair or buzz cut appearance, and you know, all of them were just as enraged. You know, I couldn't imagine going through life that angry, you know, all the time. But the Rangers used to have the Army Rangers used to have a real problem with this modified mohawk haircut. It was, you know, it was very pagan and strange looking. Having said that, they gave up that haircut sometime around 2006 or 2007, but. The Marines, which are known as the jarheads for their jarhead haircut, still have a real problem with bizarre looks. Um, but like I said, they use it to identify themselves as being a part of a, you know, to set themselves apart from other people. An issue I think you find with a lot of young men, particularly those of us who were maybe not good in sports and were, you know, not hailed um, for any particular reason in, in our schools. Is that some folks develop a kind of a glory seeker mentality, well, as the old saying goes, you know all glory is is fleeting, and as Christians, we need to learn to you know, curb our desire for recognition and glory, and at the same time, we need to give praise to kids and coworkers and others uh, who deserve praise, and you know to hopefully help wage war on the the glory seeking uh, sin. John Reed, who I previously quoted about uh, Army Ranger training, had this to say about military awards, medals, and ribbons. Although there are a number of medals for showing physical courage, conspicuous by their absence in the military is even a single medal for exhibiting moral courage. No loss, though. Few in the U.S. military ever exhibit moral courage, and when they do, like General Billy Mitchell, they are punished, not commended. General Mitchell was court-martialed and forced out of the Army for showing moral courage. And that's on John Reed's website again, which is just johnreed.com. White trash is a... Uh, the problem with white trash is something that drives much of this topic as well, too, because white trash people in general are very um, infatuated with the military. There's a... Re- feel-good militarism epitomized by losers such as country music singer Toby Keith and songs such as his Angry American. Much of the American military is compromised by white trash, especially in in combat arms and in the enlisted ranks, and I was in the enlisted ranks myself, and I saw a a good bit of this um, in the field that I was in, which was in avionics. But it was much worse in 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 combat arms. That I knew a couple of really bright basic infantrymen, and I would ask them, "What are other infantrymen like?" And they'd say, "Well, you know, (laughs) it's real easy to ride and it's real easy to fly when you're surrounded by turkeys," uh, because they were they came from some really most of those guys came from very dysfunctional families. Well, there was a a movie. I think if people want to wrap their mind around. how bad white trash can be living in a white trash town or living in a white trash family or neighborhood, how it can drive people into the military for those that maybe not have a a lot of grounding in in that kind of a society. There was a movie that came out in 2010 called winter's bone. And it was actually shot in the Missouri Ozarks. And it shows the problems of poverty, uh, meth production, meth addiction, and a general chaotic environment that the, Adults in that movie are generally unwilling to engage in any sort of a self-denial or self-discipline. Those raised with a lack of any sort of self-denial or self-discipline, let's say their parents are completely permissive. It's, a lot of those people sometimes look for institutions that will offer them a dose of, of discipline or denial, whether that be the high school football program or the military. So I think as parents, you know, we need to teach our kids to... To avoid gluttony, sometimes maybe even to fast, to be able to exercise on their own without a coach screaming at them, and to be able to study independently of a teacher or classroom setting, and if they if they can deny themselves, you know, immediate gratification or, or recreation, and if they can have the discipline to study on their own or exercise on their own. I think that'll give them a large degree of protection against the temptation of of wanting an environment that fosters discipline and and self-denial. I I will say that the white trash issue, you know, being raised white trash is a heavy, heavy burden. And the the church needs to do a lot more, I think, in terms of trying to define this problem and offering, you know, recovery um, guidelines for those people that white trash usually are they're consumed with envy, primitivism, present-oriented thinking, anti-intellectualism, love of conflict and chaos. Boy, I really see that in some relatives of ours. Uh, hedonism, and if they are religious, a lot of them are not, but if those that are religious, you'll frequently see crackpot religions such as the Pentecostal movement that they'll be you know, really into. Um I'm picking up right now a, an Echo on uh, the phone. I didn't know if it was the same thing that you had with Mickey Henry last time.
0: Oh, I, I don't hear anything on my end.
1: It it just left, so oh, okay. we're good to go. I, uh... Another thing, you know, that there's so many of the evangelical types that just love the military, and they need to realize that amongst a lot of its evil sins, this isn't the, at the top of the list, but it certainly deserves a place, is the anti-family nature of the military that, Divorce is rampant amongst the special operations community, that almost all the authors and books written by uh, former, special, uh, former special operations personnel are divorced. There are just uh, too many deployments, and the training schedule doesn't allow enough time with the family when not deployed. And this isn't new either, and this goes back at least to the Vietnam era, where there was a saying that, Every special forces soldier owned three things, a Randall knife, a star sapphire ring, and a set of divorce papers. And unfortunately, too, the anti-familial nature of the military tends to generate a a new um, generation of white trash, and hence the you have a new generation of cannon fodder to step forward into the military. Well, that's kind of my initial personal level um Small-scale examination of the of the special operations problem, and you can apply that to you know just you know, soldiering and combat arms in general. But now let's take a, a look at more of a large-scale analysis. <clears throat> when we created our, our surveillance state in the military-industrial complex, uh, these were, and, and also as well as the problem of special operations forces, this was all kind of a bad reaction to the Cold War. And, uh, the Cold War itself, of course, came out of the, out of World War II, as did, you know, a lot of the problems with the military industrial complex and the, um, seeds of the, of the surveillance state. I would say that we fought the Cold War in a faithless way using the devil's tactics of of superstatism, uh pragmatic foreign aid, you know, even if it's to a tyrannical country, if, but if they would say they would oppose the Soviet Union, and then we would give them foreign aid. Or, you know, think of Israel how they receive so much of our foreign aid. You also we, you know, obviously had the military industrial complex just consume more and more of our nation's wealth and then that, on a smaller scale the surveillance state as well too. And now all those status sins are really coming back to haunt us in a bad way. I think the the cures to the problems of militarism and the surveillance state are similar in many respects to the problems of the the cures of the police state. And this is even more true when the national enemy is something as undefinable as terrorism, uh, which is much more akin to street crime than it is to dealing with, say, a, a Soviet intercontinental ballistic missile with multiple nuclear warheads. Many of the criticisms I made of the police state carries over to the surveillance state and the military garrison state. The system can't help but produce tyranny, and it can't be reformed in any way. The only solution is really is flat out eradication and rebuilding our society alongs of a true bottom up society with the local militia being the foundation of armed power. There are. um, There's a book. I can't think of it right now, but I think it was called like Limits of Human Responsibility. But there is an issue. There are limits on what we, as as human beings and as Christians, what we we are responsible for. And this is because, at least as Calvinists, we can put those limitations in effect because we believe in the sovereignty of God. The Armenian is willing to turn the world upside down, or at least his own personal world in order to save souls, or at least you know, he thinks he's saving souls, whereas the Calvinist knows we have to wait on God's good pleasure. It was not our place to stop communism in Asia or Central America or Africa, and as Asia proved, we couldn't stop it and communism in any sort of useful way. South Korea was the one exception, but today they have one of the highest rates of infanticide in the world, and are consumed with Asiatic capitalism and a, a corporatist consumer culture. So, you know, they're headed for their own type of disaster, somewhat independent of communism. Well, good policy preempts good pro, it preempts many problems. Good policy protects us a, a lot more than the military does. By way of a, for instance, that I have a policy of not going into biker bars and consequently I don't get into fights with bikers. So I preempt the problem with good policy. If during the the Cold War, if FedGov had said, look, we're going to try to to deal with this, in large part through good policy, we'll try to isolate the Soviet Union and let it collapse as it needs to, that some of the things that should have been done would have been uh, no diplomatic recognition of the Soviet Union from FDR. We should have never allowed the, you know, I don't think we should have allowed an office of the president, but certainly not given presidents the power they have where they could issue um, things like Lend-Lease in World War II, and that would be another issue that was very much benefited uh, Communist Russia, was Lend-Lease. Our waging war against Germany in World War II had horrible ramifications, and even our war against Japan created a power vacuum in China, which the Chinese Communists ended up filling up. We shouldn't have created the atomic bomb, and... Even if we did, we should not have allowed Soviets and Jews to openly engage in nuclear espionage. And lastly, something that went on well through the 1980s was high technology transfers to the Soviet Union. And uh, Anthony Sutton's book, The Best Enemy Money Can Buy, uh, provides plenty of details for that. I want to excuse me one minute. I've got a bunch of text here that I've blacked out that I'm not going to be able to cover, but um, wanted to leave in the program just for my own sake anyway. I would say that just my talk thus far or, or what you had on uh, on Envy or, like say, Justin Cottrell's comments about the black serial killer or, or a lot of other areas that Protestantism today generally does not address these things because I think most... Protestants, or at least a lot of the clergymen have a contempt for non biblical knowledge. All facts are God's facts, but many in Protestantism teaches that the Bible is the only thing we can know. You know some pastors have confronted with this program here or any of my police state programs would respond by you know, reciting Romans thirteen as if that you know somehow improves the points that I've made. <clears throat> that when we're trying to deal with a problem, though we have you know basic heuristic guidelines identify the problem propose solutions, and then solve the problem and I see unfortunately pastors they they act like if we just stick with knowing how to live, then we will know everything but to me that's nonsense because you can't fix a problem if you don't understand it. Am my little slam there at the church um you know it just it made me livid when I read this in a book it was um uh, called seal. Team Six, Memoirs of an Elite Navy SEAL Sniper uh, by Howard Wasden. Um On page 144, he talks about going back to talk to his Baptist pastor who's called Brother Ron, and this was after uh, Desert Storm that Wasden asks and says, I killed in combat for the first time. Did I do the right thing? And Brother Ron replies, you lawfully served your country, you know, trying to adopt a you know fundamentalist tone of voice. And then he went on to just throw out more validation for what Howard Wason did, and unfortunately, this this is typical safe thinking that you would expect to hear from almost any uh, church in America. And why? Because you know there's people in the church that love the military or have their children in it, and they don't want to hear that you know, well, the pastor's you know uh, is putting the military down. There's a an issue that has been growing. Um, since around 1500 in this country, well, really across the West, and it, it coincided with the Reformation. I really don't think the Reformation spawned it. I think they just happened to pop up at the same time that we were seeing a kind of a downfall in the old medieval structure, and this the nation-state, as it uh, as it came to be called, started to rise up in the 1500s. <clears throat> but from 1500 on, we've seen the problem of this large-scale nation-state. Such as the United Kingdom or Germany or France, and I would say this stands in opposition to I would say more Christian ideas of the nation state um small scale nation states like Switzerland or the Netherlands, but from the mid early to mid nineteen hundreds we've seen the added threat now of not just the the large scale nation state but now the superpower, which would be like the u s or the old soviet union or or um China today. From the 1990s onward, now we've had this additional problem of regional governments, uh, such as the European Union, which would be the one on the, on the front burner on that, and the specter of, of global governments being added to it, um, just you know world power in general, which first flexes muscles in Korea under the United Nations, and that problem goes back to the League of Nations at the end of World War One, but. What, where I'm trying to drive with all this is that we, a lot of our military industrial complex exists on this massive scale because as a superpower, we have so many people we can tax, so many companies we can tax, that we can build this enormous, gigantic state of, of terror. And, you know, that's even got the old large scale nation states like Germany and France and the UK, where they're no longer that big of competitors. And, and prior to the superpowers came about, it was, the UK and Germany and France that got you know the two horrendous world wars going in Europe. I think long term we need to really think a, a lot of our concepts on the on the nation state and that doesn't mean we become internationalist but it means too I think that we need to start looking at ourselves more as tribalist and not someone who identifies ourselves um with this large national structure that you know tends to create these evil weapons and all these evil wars. Well, getting down to the if you know if I was going to say specific points about major solutions for the problems of special forces operations forces in the surveillance state, I think I've got fifteen points here, and some of them I've already covered but um you know if not, I'll make it a little bit more succinct here that number one, I would say we should encourage post millennialism and a long term view amongst people that Unfortunately, our public schools very much emphasize present-oriented tactical thinking. It, if you take like sports, which from a player's viewpoint is 100% tactical in nature, the, you know, the coaches are the strategists and usually pretty bad ones. But everything in a high school environment, a public school environment particularly, are very much set along the lines of, uh, of present-oriented tactical type thinking. And churches too are consumed with just pre thinking uh, in their approach to you know to finances or evangelism they are very much present oriented thinkers as well and in reformed think- churches the situation frequently isn't that much better due to the influence of radical two kingdom theology and amillennialism. well point number 2 is to greatly reduce free training and end fixed term enlistments and I don't think this will happen. I think the United States is too far gone, but it's still something people need to think about, that when you sign a soldier to a two-year or three-year or four-year term and say, well, you can't walk away from the job, it, it creates a lot of problems. Usually the quid pro quo is that we'll give you all this free training, but then you make up for that by being with us. And I think there's a lot of ways to to try to minimize the you know, government-funded training, say, particularly for pilots, if you require pilots to show up with 500 hours of flying time already and, you know, an instrument flight rating. Then you're not having to spend all of the, or the government's not having to spend all the money to train them. So to me, if, if you allow people to quit anytime you want to, you really lower the price for making ethical decisions. In organizations like the Merchant Marine or the FBI, uh, Generally speaking, most of those organizations run um, that way themselves. I mean, certainly, you know, you may not be able to quit your job if you're a merchant mariner during a cruise, but right after that, you certainly can. And the FBI, once you complete, I think, you know, your initial little contract period, you can quit anytime you like to. And why I don't like the FBI, uh, still as an organization, it functions. It's not just you know totally dysfunctional. I think something like that could be applied to the military as well. Well point number three, uh this once again deals to say with like the, the idea of a part time warrior instead of the full time standing army that we have now. Air National Guard pilots are considered full time National Guard, but they usually work, I believe, about two days a week <clears throat> because they fly about two hundred hours a year. So, you know, that's certainly doable on a two day a week schedule. You can also have, and there are, um, I believe, three states have National Guard Special Operations Units, so these would be Army Special Forces types. West Virginia, I think, has had one of the longest, but I believe Utah and the state of Texas have Special Forces National Guard Units as well. And a lot of times the critical skills can be maintained with 8 to 12 hours of training a week. The great thing about part-time soldiers is that they... You know they live in an area that's not on a military base. They develop an affinity for that area and they have jobs outside the military so the part- time soldier is much less interested in going to war uh, than their full-time counterparts and plus two the the part time soldier is less likely to turn against his community, whether that be mandatory vaccination or, or gun gun collection or anything along those lines, where he's working with. The civilian populace, on a daily basis, and living amongst them, it provides some protection.
0: That's a good point.
1: <clears throat> w- would you repeat that again, please?
0: Oh, I just said that's a good point.
1: It, yeah, the military. I mean, they love the you know the full time active duty. Yeah. They love getting people living on military bases and uh, <clears throat> you know isolating them from the civilian sector. Right. Because it makes them a lot easier to control. That's right. Uh Point number four, uh I would say this would be probably one of the easiest things to do is to create private sector special operations guidelines. I mean, really all you need, you'd like to see is multiple websites where people say, hey, do you want to be kind of the civilian equivalent of a special operations soldier? Well, here's the kind of th- basic things you need to know, and here's some of the physical training you need to have, and uh, here are some of the skills you need to have. And I think it would go a long ways towards reducing some of the appeal to special operations units because a lot of times their training is not quite um, on the level that a lot of people like to believe that it is. That the like the land warfare phase for SEAL training is actually it's pretty short. I mean that what they spend a lot of their time doing is learning how to dive these torturous swims, torturous little small boat actions, and then all their they're calisthenics, and um, a lot of times, you know, you would like someone that has a little bit more brain power, and perhaps, you know, doesn't have the ability to run in the sand for eight miles. So this would be something I would like to see in widespread distribution of where people, uh, where there's not the mystic appeal to Delta Force or Special Forces or the SEALs. Like, well, yeah, I know what those guys do, and you know, I actually worked up to where I have about, you know, two thirds of their same level of training as, as they do. But one issue with this is that you know if you work through kind of a homeschooling curriculum for special operations, you will not receive a green beret or a seal trident at the end of the session. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of men are really after. Number five, uh, people need to have an understanding of private intelligence and its successes. That there's actually quite a few um, people think need to think too of the books. That have been written on Intel subjects, private intelligence networks, and, and most importantly the just excellent, good open source intelligence that exists out there. And the main ability that should be valued is the ability to interpret open source intelligence. And that requires wisdom, and generally people who are hired by the CIA are, are not wise. While the CIA is still in existence, and once again this is an issue I don't think we're going to be able to implement, but People need to think about it, nevertheless. But while the CIA is in existence, we need to emphasize open-source intelligence and analysis. That all this exotically obtained, uh, obtained data and intelligence from satellites and from um, and from agents, where we're collecting intel in the in the field, that really open-source intelligence is the most important uh, type of information there is, and the ability to analyze it. And what would be really nice of the CIA is to shut down their ability to conduct covert operations and to end, absolutely to end the special operations group in particular. That those would do a lot towards defanging the CIA. Number seven, I would say people need to think, too, of the contributions made in certain fields by those who are considered non-professionals, that Justin Cottrell and his... His book on the rise of the black serial killer, well, he's not a Ph.D. degree sociologist or criminologist, yet he made this major breakthrough in the scholarship of that field. Mark Bowden, is who used to work, I believe it's for the Philadelphia Inquirer, he was a newspaper journalist, but he wrote the book Black Hawk Down, which is considered the authority on the Battle of Mogadishu, and not someone in the military. Also, there was William S. Lind, who's never been in the military, but he's one of the top authorities on theorists on third generation and fourth generation warfare. <clears throat> and we could think, too, of Richard Rhodes' uh, mastery of the issues in basic physics surrounding nuclear weapons, and he's not a nuclear physicist. Point number eight easier said than done, but eliminate public schools to kill off the cannon fodder machine for the military. Number nine: Wage war on the temptation of gnosticism and the desire for secret knowledge. It's easier said than done, as well. Too that that type of gnosticism, I would say, includes everything from Freemasonry to special operations forces to intelligence. and wisdom and insightful knowledge are much more important and needed than secret knowledge. Number ten: The warrior caste came about in, in part due to the rise of college you know way too many college graduates and I think it, there was a desire by non-academics to have a non-academic caste so say something like delta force is the military equivalent of a, a university like Harvard or Stanford and the occupational licensing racket especially for medical doctors and lawyers has made the situation worse Overall, we need to, as a society, work to kill off manufactured eliteness or artificial eliteness. That means working to kill off academia and occupational licensing as well as our standing army. Well, I've got five points. Actually, I've only got three points left, and they're pretty short ones. We also need to, this would be the 11th point, work on restoring sources of manhood for a matriarchal society that hates men. We need to wage war on the gynocracy by means of of knowledge itself, just identifying the problem itself. Then we need to be more specific to the issue, work to recreate institutions for men such as volunteer fire departments, which still exist in many smaller communities, shooting clubs, hot rod auto maintenance clubs, disaster preparedness groups, and the armed posse as an alternative to law enforcement And simultaneously while doing this, we need to de-emphasize the sports culture as well as attack the sports culture, as well as attacking um, different sources for mindless masculinity. Number 12, this is a really big one um, that's seldom mentioned, but we need to teach our kids that it is okay to quit that the best thing to do is to get away from bad jobs, bad people, bad towns, bad churches, and bad organizations. The idea that you can't quit a sadistic organization, whether that be a high school uh, football team or special operations selection course, is born out of false masculinity and embracing masochism. We should show absolutely zero loyalty to those who deserve no loyalty. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> And lastly, we need to wage war on the police state, since it is connected in many uh, ways with the military, and special, I do a lot of special operations units in the surveillance state. And These are, you know, obviously, I did three talks with you on the police state subject, which people can listen to as they want to. And I believe, and there is actually, no, there's an additional book, which I was thinking about skipping, but uh, I think it is important to the issue of the of the superstate, the superpower, and the large-scale nation-state. It's a, a book entitled the, Middle, "The Medieval Origins of the Modern State," written by Joseph Strayer. Uh, many of the problems of the, of the West, he believes, started in the 13th century, and that everything was pretty much in place by the 13th century for the modern nation-state. Um, the state control of the courts, state control of the money versus private meaning, and the nation replacing the church and family in importance and uh, I mean for instance look in the US almost all of our holidays are our national government dec- decreed holidays and with that <clears throat> i believe it is time for us to get on to special, special operations, operations forces themselves
0: yeah this is what everyone's uh this is what all the the cops really want to be they want to work for the feds but when they can't work for the feds then they just take a job with the police force local that's police right
1: force. and if a few of them they're a little bit broader they hope after five or six years working as a policeman that they can transfer to the fbi and or there's, a of, there's
0: a ton of there's uh, a ton of national shows that really glorify uh, fed cops tv shows you know just think of any of them uh-huh. they, they all they, they glorify the fed, fed cops man
1: it's pretty, you know. It's where um, I think it came up in the back in the fifties, where you had this adoration of J. Edgar Hoover and his FBI. No, not so much the adoration of J. Edgar Hoover, but of the FBI, the G-Men. That weren't there a couple? I think of you know nationally broadcast television shows about the about mm. the G-Men. I'm not sure. And then, of course, you had Elliot Ness and the Enforcers, going back into the time of the. Uh, Alcohol prohibition. And they were considered these men of of unpeachable character and they were going to make the world safe from from alcohol. And though of course they were just the forerunners of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. And uh, you know, it was amazing where we had at one time amongst the CIA and the FBI that we had these two men running those organizations that were in those positions for a long time, Alan Dulles in the CIA, who I believe was there from the late 40s until the time JFK sacked him, I believe, in early 63, and then J. Edgar Hoover, who ran the FBI from its inception all the way until, uh, I believe, sometime in the 1970s. These men just developed just extreme amounts of power. and Of course, the uh, JFK assassination war... That Alan Dulles is, you know, he was very definitely someone had a re- had a reason to want to bump off Kennedy, and then you, there's a number of topics that you cannot even remotely discuss without bringing in Jake or Hoover and his ability to, to blackmail people, and and you know the local cops they want you know the added power that they can get through an FBI slot or, or you know, the better pay or the better benefits or the better pension, <clears throat> and plus the fact that I think. While there is an anti-cop movement growing, and I'm glad there is, I think the FBI is a little bit more immune. In most people's minds, they still think, oh, well, they investigate you know, bank robberies or kidnappings. And, and they do, but there's also a lot of nonsense, or not nonsense, it's a very dangerous stuff about trying to paint everyone with a terrorist brush. And increasingly amongst the FBI, the counter-terrorist Issues just taking more and more uh, dominance, and so you know that gives you the chance to think, "Oh, I'm saving our civilization, not from you know some individual bank robber, but from a terrorist unit." And so then they go out and paint uh, Ron Paul supporters or or anyone that um, you know criticizes the government as a terrorist. And these people who are operating on, you know, two-digit IQs and they're, you know, unregenerate men that they buy into it because, you know, it's kind of another form of glory-seeking that they believe they're going to, they have this messiah complex and they believe they're going to save America from the, you know, the evil terrorists, whoever they, whoever they are. All right. Would you want to say anything else about cops before we move on? Or? No, let's
0: go ahead and, 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 and tackle this. We've. Uh... We're we're just over an hour. It's been an hour and ten minutes, and so more material to go. I think we should just dive through it. Okay, or dive well into it.
1: And in the uh, days of old in World War II, which is where the Genesis, where a lot of the special for- operation forces had their Genesis at, in the Alamo Scouts, the Rangers, the Frogmen, the Underwater Demolition Team members, the Paratroopers, particularly the 101st Airborne, which. Uh, it dove into France or jumped into France behind the beaches at Normandy, Alpine Mountain Troops, and then the uh, OSS, which was the forerunner to the CIA, but uh, there's a lot of special operations issues that go back to the OSS. Um, now, most of those skilled areas, you know, from frogmen and, and paratroopers, that, that they're not really as elite in and of themselves, but most of those skills have been broken down and, and integrated into different special operations forces and many of them are expected to know not only how to scuba dive, but you know how to, to be paratroopers as well and how to do mountain climbing. So, uh, so a quick review of several of those areas. The Alpine mountain troops, that, uh, through the ages, the Alpine, uh, Alpine troops, we're talking about Europe, and obviously the mountains are equated with the Alps, but Alpine troops have been considered some of the most elite soldiers around. Uh, There have been even special battle rifles created for Alpine troops in the post-World War II era. Beretta has their BM-59 Alpini, which is for Italian Alpine troops, and Heckler & Koch in uh, Germany for their Bundeswehr with the G3 rifle. There was a collapsible stock version for German Alpine troops. Well, in the U.S., we have several uh, training areas for that kind of a thing. That the Marine Corps has their Mountain Warfare Training Center in Northern California, which is pretty close to uh, Lake Tahoe. The Army uh, has two areas, the Northern Warfare Training Center, which is at Fort Wainwright in Alaska. It focuses heavily on winter warfare. They have their second schools of the Army, Mountain Warfare School, which is in um, Vermont that focuses pretty heavily on uh, more of the mountain climbing aspects and and not so much emphasizing the cold weather uh, part. Then the SEALs have a uh, special detachment called the Naval Naval Special Warfare Cold Weather Detachment, which is in Kodiak, Alaska, and it's there to train SEALs in winter warfare and cold water survival. The parachutists and airborne troops, there are still just a lot of just plain Jane airborne troops such as the Army's 82nd Airborne Division, which is at Fort Bragg, or the 101st Airborne Division, which is at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Most are not trained in freefall parachuting, just the basic static line jump, which is called hop and pop um, you know, in the vernacular. Special operations units do almost all the free fall parachuting. That is, you know, where you jump out with your parachute on and then you pull the rip cord when you decide to pull the rip cord, not allowing the static line to rip the, the rip cord for you. Uh, everyone but the Navy uses the Army for basic parachute training. The, the Army has a basic parachute training course at, at Fort Benning that lasts for three weeks and it's just static line, hop and pop only. Uh, for free fall parachuting. And some of the stuff, and people may be asking, why am I talking about Well, part is if you're dealing with wannabes, people who are trying to act like, oh, I was a big special operations force guy. Well, you can ask them some basic questions like this. Like, well, where did you do your parachute training at? And a lot of them are like, well, uh, um uh, well, I, 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 don't remember that. Well, you know, you've outed them. So it, sometimes this is good information to know, uh, how to deal with someone who's, a, kind of a phony and, and, bragging about things that they've not done. Um fall parachuting, though, which includes halo and hay-ho jumps. Halo is high-altitude, low-opening. Um, hay-ho is high-altitude, high-opening jump. If you really want to pull your chute and glide for multiple miles, the high-altitude, high-opening is the way to do it. Uh, both of those use uh, bottled oxygen because usually you're jumping from over 15,000 feet up. And that course is, uh, you have a one week wind tunnel course at Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina, followed by three weeks at Yuma Proving Ground in, uh, Arizona. Uh, the Navy has their own kind of a shortened, um parachute course for the SEALs out at San Diego. So, like I said, you know, they're the only ones that aren't using all the, the Army facilities. Uh, movies that deal with paratroopers are, there's uh HBO had a 10-part mini series that came out earlier in this century probably about 8 years ago called Band of Brothers and it's about the 101st Airborne Division and in their training leading up to the Normandy invasion uh, invasion and handles uh, operation Market Garden on the, the end of the war. It's got unfortunately some Holocaust garbage in it but by and large I think it's it, it's it's worth watching and like I said it's about the 101st Airborne Division. If you go back a little bit further, there was a 1977 movie called A Bridge Too Far, and it's about uh, Operation Market Garden, which was set in the Netherlands during World War II, and it also had a large role for the 101st Airborne Division. The the next specialty group is Frogmen uh, Underwater Demolition Team uh, members and combat divers. That almost all dive qualified combat personnel are from special operations units in the military. The one exception would be salvage and technical divers. The Marine Corps has a, um, they have their diving courses at uh, the Navy base at Pensacola, Florida, and the Air Force uses that same facility for their para and combat controllers. The Army has their diving school at the uh, Key West Naval Air Station in Florida. And it's for, you know, pretty much just special forces operation, uh, special forces personnel only. The SEALs, they do all their dive training at, uh, Bud's training at, uh, the Coronado Amphibious Base in San Diego. If people want to get a better idea for what goes on in dive training, particularly the harassment dives, that the Discovery Channel did a series called Surviving the Cult, the Cut. And they have a, um an episode about the Army's dive school as well as the Air Force's dive school. And they're both, you know, I thought they were entertaining to watch and were somewhat insightful. Uh, the last group that they have not always been considered elite, um, I would said they have kind of a semi-elite status, were snipers. They certainly have a mystique about them. That Probably the best-known sniper in American history was a Marine gunnery sergeant by the name of Har- Carlos Hathcock and he had the most confirmed skill uh, the most confirmed kills for many years uh and he was in the Vietnam war and now he's been bumped off by SEAL sniper Chris Kyle who claims to have the most confirmed kills for any American sniper and he wrote a book about the subject that came out i think uh, a year and a half before his death and he he was he was a bad person he was a you know very bloodthirsty person and i'm I'm glad he's dead uh, the Finnish sniper Simo H- H- Haahaja—I'm uh, butchering that pronunciation—but he fought in the Russo-Finnish War of 1939 to 1940, and he's considered to have the most kills of all time. <clears throat> in terms of the the schools, the Marine Corps has a uh, their primary Scout Sniper schools at Quantico, Virginia. Then that's also where the FBI's hostage rescue team and the Secret Service has their presidential protection. Detail snipers training as well. The SNEAL, Seal snipers trained at a uh, at a sniper school at the National Guard base in Indiana, uh, Camp Atterbury. <clears throat> and the Seal snipers from Seal Team Six can use any sniper course they want. Some use the Seal the Seal course, others use the Marine Corps Scout Snipers course at Quantico. The Army they have three sniper schools: one for Delta Force. Uh, special Forces has a d- sniper course of their own, and then there's just the plain Jane sniper course over the average infantryman and the Rangers, at, which is at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. Scrolling down, a bit. okay, um, down to the movies for for snipers. Uh, Enemy at the Gates was a 2001 movie set during the Battle of Stalingrad. It was uh, a bit too pro-Soviet in my opinion, but still, I thought you know definitely well worth watching. And uh, it deals with two Soviets, one, uh, two snipers, one Soviet and one German. Uh, there's also the Discovery Channel's "Surviving the Cut" series. Again, has an episode about the Army's uh, Basic Sniper School at Fort Benning. And If you want a book on on sniping, not so much the history of it or who's doing it in the in the military, is I highly, highly recommend uh, a retired Army major's book. His name's John Plaster. The book's called The Ultimate Sniper and get the second edition of it because that's out now. I have the first edition and it is just, it's a, an outstanding book. And you can check out uh, the website as well called com. Well, scrolling down a little bit further, I think I'm going to skip one or two of those sections. They're not overly pertinent. This gets us down to the Army Special Operations Units. Well, these include the the Rangers, Special Forces, or the Green Berets, Delta Force, the Intelligence Support Activity, and the 160th Special Operations um, Aviation Regiment. The Rangers are were, are basically just elite light infantrymen or shock troops, and they wear a tan beret now. They, they used to wear a black beret, but the Army decided that everyone needed to wear a beret, so the the rangers had to pick a you know new color out and by the way the army when they picked decided everyone need to wear a black beret and this was about 2001 i mean that was just egalitarianism at work uh, personally i hate berets i hate wearing you know I, fortunately i never had to wear one when i was in the military but they are they're kind of really un, uncomfortable headgear and they're uh, you know other than the elite status they convey they um uh, I, I, I just I really didn't like them, and the fact that the military that the army was saying well, we're all going to go black berets now, the implication was that everyone is elite who's in the military or in the army, and obviously not if everyone is elite, then no one's elite. But the Rangers, they go through a training course. that's more about sadism than it is learning about anything. It lasts nine weeks, and really most of the skills they pick up are from uh, the Ranger units that they eventually join. But Ranger School starts at Fort Benning, Georgia. There's a, um, you know, so-called mountain phase. It's more of a hill phase that's held at uh, Camp Merrill, Georgia, which is about 100 miles northeast of Atlanta. And the final phase of the jungle phase is held at Eglin Air Force Base in the Florida Panhandle. Rangers are, are good for missions where you need to secure a, somewhat of a large area, like an air airfield or a stadium. Submissions they've been used on in the past include uh, securing the airport at, on the island of Grenada back in 1983. They secured the outer compound area for one of the warlords in Mogadishu while uh, Delta Force went inside the compound itself. And if the uh, Operation Eagle Claw had ever taken place, and this was um, the effort back in 1980 to rescue the Americans held hostage in, in Iran that the ranger, there was going to be a company of rangers that were going to go in, and they were going to hold um, a soccer stadium, which was right across the street from the American embassy, and helicopters were going to fly in and out of the uh, the soccer stadium with the rescued uh, Americans from the embassy. Most rangers hold the basic parachute jump qualification. A few of them may hold the free fall parachute uh, qualification, but I'm not sure. Um, Back in 1984, the Rangers created this new division, which was called, I mean, it's basically a super ranger. Their official name is the 75th Ranger Regiment, Regimental Reconnaissance Company. But it's um, it's limited to basically NCOs, non-commissioned officers. So it's kind of the the more uh, elite of the Rangers. The selection is held twice a year at Fort Benning. It's a a 34-week course. And they're, the unit is focused on three primary tasks: uh, active reconnaissance, surveillance, and direct action. So these are kind of the top dogs of the Rangers units. You now, probably the unit it, in the Army that was the best well-known until the SEALs started becoming so popular around 1990 was the was the Special Forces in the Army, and uh, they were, like I said, very well known during the Cold War. They're very focused on winning the hearts and the minds of the native population, which is one reason why language skills uh, were and and still are so emphasized in the army. In their early years, uh, special forces had people from Poland, Germany, uh, Czechoslovakia, and other Eastern European countries in it who had native language skills, that they were hoping to free those areas from the curse of communism. Special forces was intended as a force multiplier, Due to their ability to train foreign forces, the idea of a force multiplier is that you send in a special forces A team, which has 12 soldiers in it, and they in turn train 100 soldiers, so hence the term force multiplier. They are also a long-range reconnaissance specialist and unconventional warfare gurus. It's something people need to keep in mind is that special forces refers to an army organization that the term should not be used interchangeably with special operations. Here's a little way to remember it, that special forces are a special operations force, but not all special operations personnel are a part of special forces. Special forces are known unofficially as Green Berets, since they wear a Green Beret. That goes back to the time of JFK. They used to be considered the Army's most elite unit, but over the past 30 years or so, there's been more and more emphasis shifting to Delta Force, which I'll talk about in just a moment. The ironic thing is really the, the Special Forces, the Green Berets are in many ways much higher, uh, trained to a much higher level than the Delta Force, and it would, wouldn't take a whole lot to bring a, a Green Beret up to Delta Force standards for their kind of, um for their kind of mission, but uh, people kind of, you know, live in the uh, time that they, you know, we're living in a time now where like, well, well, Delta Force and SEALs are the the big units, and so that's what people talk about, not realizing, like, well, actually, you know, these Green Berets guys can still do quite a few different missions. The headquarters for Special Forces is in uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is just outside of Asheville, and that's where their initial selection course and much of their uh, entry training takes place, as well as their command structure. The A-team has 12 men in it. There's a commander who's the um, the officer, usually a captain. There's an executive officer. There's a team operations uh, non-commissioned officer, NCO. an intelligence operations, NCO. And then they have two weapon specialists. These are usually the snipers as well. Two engineering NCOs, and they're, they really aren't engineers, but they're rather skilled in demolition and low-level construction. You have two communications NCOs who are kind of, say, supercharged radio operators, uh, adept at doing what a lot of ham radio field guys would be able to do, and they usually know some uh, cryptography and computer network knowledge. And then, lastly, you have the special forces medic NCOs, and those guys go through the longest training. It's it's nearly one year long. Um, when they finish, they end up spending six to eight weeks at a level four trauma center somewhere in the country where there's a lot of you know, violent crime, say the Bronx or New Orleans. So they they go to those areas to practice their skills, and and they repeat coming back to those areas uh, multiple times, you know, during their Time with Special Forces. Now, I have a copy of the U.S. Army Special Forces Medical Handbook, and it, it's pretty impressive what all's in there. It, and it's far beyond the scope of of a normal civilian paramedic, and I think their training is really, in a lot of ways, closer to a, a lower level a doctor in an emergency room than it is to say a, a, a paramedic. Well, all. Special Forces soldiers hold initial parachute jump rating. Um, in the past, about half of them were qualified in free fall parachuting, and the other held um, dive um, scuba diving qualifications. That may have changed since then, where there's you know there may be more cross training now. There are several thousand though uh, Army Special Forces soldiers. A, a percentage are assigned to a, a particular Special Forces group that focuses on several specific foreign languages. So, for instance, you would have a a special forces group that's focused on the Far East, so you would have language specialists in it who can speak Japanese or Korean or Mandarin Chinese, maybe Cantonese, uh, Vietnamese, and Thai. Well, they, in turn, would be assigned to a, that special forces group would be also assigned to a Department of Defense Command that covers their part of the world, say, such as you know U.S. Southern Command or U.S. Central Command. And since the Special Forces, they emphasize unconventional warfare, that they really are the foreign language gurus, that uh, the Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 has nowhere near uh, the level of language specialization that uh, Special Forces does. I think this all well, this brings us to the intelligence support activity a relatively unknown um, unit that's in the in the army it is a it's considered a tier, a tier one special operations unit it was um created to give tactical intelligence to special operations units due to the CIA's failures to do so back um in the failed mission in Iran in 1980 The Intelligence Support Activity is based at Fort Belvoir in Northern Virginia. Sometimes uh, they refer to themselves rather blasphemously, I believe, as the Army of Northern Virginia. The Intelligence Support Activity focuses primarily on human intelligence, that's HUMINT, and signal intelligence, SIGINT, and to a lesser extent, uh, direct action missions. The intelligence support activity was deeply involved in the hunt for Pablo Escobar because they were being used in the war on drugs. Uh, Interestingly enough, Delta Force had a falling out with the intelligence support activity, so Delta Force created their own internal tactical intelligence group. So another instance of the Army having um, more duplication of effort. And let me take a quick break before we start in on Delta Force.
0: Sure thing. I'm going to get it. Zip of water myself. Okay, I got a fresh bottle of water. I got my uh, pistol by my side, waiting for a SWAT raid. <laughs> okay, <I'm>, uh, ready, <laughs> ready to go.
1: Well, it's good and interesting you say SWAT because I think Delta Force, in a lot of ways, that they are a, a kind of a glorified SWAT team in many uh, in many ways. I mean, granted, they can do a lot of things SWAT teams can't do. That they're you know false parachute qualified. They can use any tank weapons, and no SWAT team can do that. But I think in terms of perspective, people need to keep in mind that you know, really, that Delta Force does it. And, you know, they're kind of an international SWAT team. When they were started out, their official name was Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, and they've had a name change, like a lot of the you know, Tier One structures have have experienced. And they were called at one time the Combat Act. Group, uh, but they are like Navy uh, SEAL Team Six. They are considered, uh, you know, the two Tier One counterterrorist forces. When Colonel Charlie Beckwith started Delta Force in the late 1970s, he used more of the British Special Air Service organizational structure of squadrons. Uh, one reason for that was that Beckwith was. Detached and spent, I think, 18 months with the British SAS back in the 1960s when they were fighting a, um, a communist action and or against the communists in Malaysia. So you know, he used a lot of the SAS ideas for the creation of Delta Force. And they use there are several squadrons in Delta Force that can be deployed in different places. As I mentioned, it was a B Squadron that was deployed to Waco during the uh, siege of the Davidians. Delta Force recruits pretty heavily from the Rangers and to a lesser extent uh, Special Forces. Delta is based exclusively out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. That there's no other locations where they are permanently headquartered. Um, as previously noted, their layout and mission, at least as conceived, is radically different from um, Special Forces. Delta Force is actually so well equipped it even has its own medical staff with trauma surgeons. So they they. They receive a lot of money to do whatever they want to do in terms of training and outfitting themselves. Now, here's another bit to uh, frustrate the wannabes. The term "operator" was first created to describe those who completed Delta Force's assault training course, which is about six months long, and that that excludes the selection phase where they you know call through people to you know pick them out for their team. Uh, The term operative was considered to belong to the spooks associated with the CIA. So, you know, Delta Force ended up choosing the term operator. Now, at this point in all the gun magazines, everyone talks about, um, you know, all the wannabes that have appropriated the word uh, operator to describe themselves. If there's a a term you hear in weightlifting circles, um, especially amongst powerlifters, they say, do you even lift? Well, the... Wannabe operators have appropriated the word to where they now even say, "Do you even operate?" It's kind of childish, but you know, most wannabes—they're um, fighting low self-esteem, and so they end up having to create this little fake life that they have. As I said previously, the Delta members are a lot like a SWAT team. Um, All of them are uh, free-fall parachute-qualified, and they're probably the best parachutist of any of the members of the the military in general. They practice uh, parachuting relentlessly. The final test for the Delta Force selection process, which um, Eric Haney in his book, Inside Delta Force, goes into it quite uh, in depth. And it was sort of impressive in that, it was not overly sadistic. I think usually you were allowed to sleep eight hours a night, but you had to do these land navigation courses and hike for, you know, 15 to 20 miles. Well, the last day of that of uh, the Delta Force selection course, you had to hike a um, do a 40 mile hike in less than 24 hours while carrying a weapon in a 30 pound 30 to 40 pound rucksack, and so that was you know pretty intense. But um, still, in a lot, of, a lot of ways, I'd rather do that than go through the uh, Navy SEALs' and buds training. And just like the intelligence support activity or the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, who I'll be talking about here in just a second, you don't just enlist in the Army and go into Delta Force. That uh, Delta usually likes to hire someone um, who's been at least a sergeant, who's a and that would be a lower level non-commissioned officer, and who's been in the Army for four to five years. Well, that brings us to the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, who I will just refer to as the 160th SOAR, but they're called the Night Stalkers and they are based out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and they are a helicopter group. They, uh, too, had their beginnings in Operation Eagle Claw back in 1980 when the, with the failed attempt to go into Iran, and a lot of things, just like um, we see a lot of things going back into World War II or Vietnam, well, this The failed Operation Eagle Claw is where a lot of different things and special um, operations units go back to. The the 160s soar also, uh, let me back up. One thing that went wrong in Operation Eagle Claw, the main thing that went wrong, were the Navy's helicopters, that they really didn't train for the mission that well and they did not have these large-scale dust filters uh, that were needed in case of a sandstorm in Iran. I think when they landed, the visibility was bad and one of them ended up crashing into a C-130, which burst into flames and ultimately ended up exploding. So the Army did not want to have to depend on the Navy again, and so they made sure that inside the U.S. Special Operations Command, they would be the ones that would fly the helicopters. So the 160th soared as a result. The 160th SOAR also has its origins in a clandestine CIA program started back in 1981 called Sea Spray. And Sea Spray was much smaller than what the 160th SOAR is, but still it was a group of several types of um, fixed-wing aircraft, helicopters, and pilots. But these are undoubtedly the best helicopter pilots uh, out of the different military branches. They train and fly relentlessly. All the pilots have to serve at least one hitch in whatever their basic helicopter type is. And then they can try out for the 160th soar. They have a, <clears throat> I think it's for the enlisted as well as the commissioned officers. There's a five week selection course they have to go through. So it's probably the least rigorous of any in the military, but still, you know, it requires some exertion um, as well. Much of the movie and book Black Hawk Down was about the downing of two helicopters from the 160th SOAR in Somalia. So that was not a regular army helicopter unit that was there. Also as well, the, there was um, stealth, uh, stealth versions of the Black Hawk created that were used in the mission to um, kill Osama bin Laden or once again whoever he really was. And those helicopters were flown by the 160th SOAR as well. The movie Zero Dark Thirty has um, has a model, and I think probably a pretty accurate model, of what those uh, stealth Blackhawks would look like. And one and last thing, it's kind of a little bit superficial with the Army units, but the Army and the Air Force are both um, crazy about berets, and the Army has more berets than any other... Um, branch of the military that for the rangers they have a tan beret the special forces have a green beret the 160 is sore i think they wear a dark pink beret the airborne divisions wear a maroon beret so that's another way you can kind of you know ask questions about people who you think are lying about their military experience <clears throat> well this brings us to the navy special operations units and out of the four branches of the military, the Army and the Navy by far have, you know, do the most with special operations units. The Navy has three uh, groups that I think um, fit under the umbrella of special operations. The basic SEAL teams, SEAL Team 6, and the special boat teams. And the special boat teams are frequently deployed. Um, they, they support SEALs in, in their actions. And SEAL, by the way, stands for Sea, Air, and Land. Well, let's talk about the least um, discussed group first, which is the Special Warfare Combatant Craft Crewmen. And this is a part of the Special Boat Teams that they do their initial selection and training, just like the SEALs at Coronado Naval Amphibious Base in San Diego. And then they go to a NASA facility in southern Mississippi. It's the John Stennis NASA. Center, which is where rocket engines were um, tested for many years. And there's a lot of it's near the Mississippi Delta, so there's a lot of um, small rivers and estuaries for training there. Now, the initial SEAL training and selection takes place at, at Coronado, as I mentioned, and uh, also as I mentioned earlier, that BUD stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL. And it lasts about seven months. Um, early on is the infamous Hell Week, which is I would say definitely the most sadistic trial by fire selection course in the U.S. military. And during Hell Week, the trainees are brought um, pretty close, or I would say, into the low-level stages of hypothermia, where they have to. The instructors really have to make sure that the student, that the um, aspiring trainees, do not fall into full bore hypothermia. Like I said, it's very sadistic. Um, Excuse me for one minute. I was losing my place. The seals are all dive qualified, as as you would expect, and they have some degree of qualification when it comes to parachuting. Although most of them, uh, or at least the newer, minute seals, are not fully trained in halo and hay-ho jumps. After the seals graduate from their uh, their seven month initial training buds course, then they're assigned to some seal team. You know, seal team one, two, three, or four or five. And then after several more months of training, they're awarded a uh, gold trident symbol, which is, you know, the seal Budweiser. There's um, several seal teams, but they're all either headquartered at uh, in San Diego at the Coronado Amphibious Base or at the Little River Naval Amphibious Base in Virginia, which is near Norfolk. Seals also, they uh, train with a lot of different other units in the world, uh, just like the Army's Delta Force or SEAL Team 6. The basic crew, boat crew is not as sophisticated as a Special Forces A team, as the SEALs are more focused on uh, direct action missions than unconventional warfare. It is set up more along the lines of assaulters, snipers, radio men, and medics, and their medics usually are not as um, thoroughly trained as uh, Special Forces medics. That takes us then to SEAL Team 6, which their proper name is the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, or DEVGRU. But they were started by a real egomaniac and a wicked man named Richard Marcinko back in 1980 in the wake once again of Operation Eagle Claw. And the Navy wanted to have its own counter-terrorist unit. So the thinking was the Army had their unit, well now the Navy had to have their unit. But it, it's, it's very much a lot like uh, Delta Force, except they emphasize the diving and uh, water aspects more of of counterterrorism work than what Delta Force does. They are based at the uh, Damn Neck Annex at uh, Oceana Naval Air Station in Virginia, which is very near Little River, uh, amphibious base so they stay close to the other to the east coast seals. When um well, just debating whether to include this section or not. There's um frequently There's a lot of uh, rivalries between the the Army and the Navy, and to a lesser extent between the Air Force and the Navy, but when there is an operation, usually one branch or the other looks to find a way to get their personnel in so that they can have some involvement, and this is really good for officers seeking seeking promotion. That 20 years ago during the occupation of Somalia, while we were there, and uh, it's actually, I think it was 20 years ago um, on Thursday when that disastrous firefight took place, but there were four um, members of seal Team six that were there in Somalia it was mainly a Delta force and Ranger operation, but seal Team six had four members there and they were working with the CIA at a listening post in mogadishu and uh you know it ended um, pretty badly for one of them uh, Howard Wasden, who wrote the book uh, about the um being an elite SEALs Team 6 sniper, that was where he was wounded very badly. A number of SEAL Team 6 members, well, all, all the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound were um, SEAL Team 6. I, I don't remember which particular squadron. But since then, a lot of those members who were in that attack, um, they've died. Um, some through violent deaths and others, I think, through accidents. Was this a coincidence? Well, Probably not. One thing that was very odd after the attack was that the Secretary of Defense and uh, Vice President Biden revealed the name of not only the unit that carried out the attack, but the particular squadron who made the raid. And something I'm looking forward to on the on the fake bin Laden raid is a new book coming out by Seymour Hirsch, who wrote um, pretty much the best book on the Israeli nuclear weapons program which was called the Samson option. But here's what Seymour Hersh has to say about the uh, Bin Laden raid. Nothing's been done about that story. It's one big lie. Not one word of it is true. So I'm interested to hear what he has to say on that. Also as well, Paul Craig Roberts, who was an assistant secretary of the Treasury under Ronald Reagan, that his website, he has an article explaining in depth why Bin Laden was not killed in the in that raid. And I'd say most people who are kind of revisionists that they, they tend to believe that Bin Laden died around 2002 or 2003, that, you know, he was on dialysis already. And the fact that once Bin Laden was supposedly killed in this raid by SEAL Team 6, that he was buried at sea so quickly, so surreptitiously that that there was something there to hide, and you know what's the first rule of a, of a bad assassination? Well, you kill the assassins. And so, just like Lee Harvey Oswald was a patsy from the assassination of JFK, it may be that there was, you know, concerned members of SEAL Team Six would eventually say, "Hey, you know, we didn't really kill Bin Laden. The people we killed there, none of them look like Bin Laden." So, it may that may be part of the plan is to kill them um, off. I once again, I would. Really looking forward to what Seymour Hirsch has to say on that topic. We are now down to the Marine Corps group. and Jarheads. They were – the Marine Corps was kind of odd in that they took a very much a different approach to special forces than the Army um, did. And they're very much like the Army in many respects, so it was kind of odd. But they had two groups – that were somewhat special forces oriented or special operations oriented, their reconnaissance marines and their force reconnaissance and their force reconnaissance marines. But these were deci- assigned to Marine Expeditionary Units. They did not exist on their own and did, they didn't have their own missions separate of the Marine Expeditionary Unit. Um, if you take a division, you know, you hear people say, well, a company-sized force, battalion-sized uh, force, division-sized. A division-sized Marine force is about 10,000 men. And uh, once you dress it up appropriately, it's called the Marine Expeditionary Unit. But out of that division, they have a battalion-sized force which handles the division's reconnaissance and specialized warfare needs. And within that battalion, you'll have Basic Reconnaissance Marines, and then a smaller number of Force Reconnaissance Marines. The recon units are referred to as Marine Reconnaissance Battalions or Marine Division Recon, although some of the particular verbiage doesn't matter that much. Then, uh, I think it was in 2006 that the Marine Corps... Wanted to, you know, keep up with the Joneses and the Navy and the Army, so they created their own special operations group, and the members of that are called, um, special operations critical skill operators. But the basic Marine recon soldier is a lot like a ranger in many ways, and they go through this 12 week long sadistic course at Camp Pendleton, California, and, and so did the force recon men as well too. Uh, Marine recon soldiers, um they while they're like Marines Rangers in many ways, they typically don't uh would not be scheduled to parachute in to do some sort of mission. And they have only limited direct action um uh, missions to engage in. Uh there's HBO has a, a mini series called Generation Kill and I, I really, really recommend it. It's an eight hour miniseries about a Marine Corps recon uh platoon force in the early days of the Iraq war. It was based on a book, which in turn was based on a three-part story in Rolling Stone Magazine, uh, filled by a, or filed by a reporter embedded in a recon unit. If you watch the interviews after the last episode, they have interviews with the original members of the recon unit that I was just completely unimpressed with their nature, that they were not very sharp people. But inside of the Recon battalions, as I mentioned already, that you have this, you know, force reconnaissance platoons, and for years this was the Marine Corps equivalent of uh, the Army Special Forces in, in many respects. That they you know, are dive qualified, they're parachute qualified, uh, but the force recon does not specialize in unconventional warfare. The, I think in a lot of ways, the, the Marines in certain aspects, they are um, vastly inferior to the other branches. I mean, the enlisted men; uh, their base housing is deplorable. I think. Um, also, a lot of their policies are real petty. But in other areas, I think the Marines are, are head and shoulders above the other branches. And I think the way they had their reconnaissance and force reconnaissance integrated into the where they existed to help the Marine Combat Division. I think that was a good idea, and I think it was good for you know, Esprit de Corps that they weren't out with their own uh, particular missions in mind, that they were there to help the basic infantrymen. Now, movies on uh, Force Recon, Scout Sniper. The movie that Bob Lee Swagger loves so much uh, is called Shooter the character in it played by Mark Wahlberg he is a retired force recon scout sniper and it doesn't really give you any insight at all into into the uh, force recon aspects of the marine corps but still it's a good movie and I wanted to mention it but uh, as i mentioned the special operations regiment um inside the marine corps is really new it was created in 2006 and it was definitely i think part of keeping up with the with the joneses the MARSOC, which is the Marine um, Marine Special Operations um, uh, Command, is they break down their teams into 14-man um, Marine Special Operations teams. So this is kind of like the Special Forces A teams in some ways, which has um, the A teams have 12 men, the MARSOC 14 has 14 men in it. Their headquarters element consists of a team leader, a team chief, an operations NCO, and a communications NCO. Each tactical element consists of an elemental leader, three critical skills operators, and a a Navy amphibious uh, reconnaissance corpsman. And by the way, the Navy, uh, the Marine Corps does not have its own medics, chaplains, or doctors. They have to use the, the Navy for that it's kind of a bizarre arrangement, but that's how it's been for decades it's a It's a stupid tradition, but they have it and our last unit is the is the Air Force that most people are very surprised they have special operations units um at all, and they're not really on the level like I said earlier as the Army or Navy or even the Marine Corps they can't engage in direct action units themselves they have to be embedded with someone you know with another group usually SEALs or um, Special Forces. The Air Force has a Special Operations Command, and most of their aircraft are located either at Herbert Field on Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, or they're located at Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. So aircraft like the AC-130 gunship, the MC-130, which is a specialized C-130 for deploying Special Operations Personnel, they have the CV-22 Osprey, which is that, um, you know, odd hybrid helicopter aircraft that the Marine Corps has been, um, you know, finally adopted a few years ago. And the MH-60 Payhawk helicopter. So definitely kind of some oddball, um, you know, aircraft that you don't find in, in normal, um, normal Air Force units. The special operations units, and these would be all the enlisted men, are the pararescuemen and they, their main mission or at least is intended is to rescue downed pilots and are considered very specialized paramedics. They wear a, a maroon beret. Then you have the combat controllers. They call in airstrikes and they are actually uh, fully trained air traffic controllers, but intended to work at areas where you wouldn't have an air traffic control tower. They wear a scarlet beret. And then lastly, you have combat weathermen, which if you were setting up a landing strip somewhere and you wanted meteorological data right then, as well as uh, basic survey data of, you know, will this area support the weight of an aircraft? The combat weathermen can do that, and they wear a gray beret. Also, there's another group, which some would consider special operations oriented, others wouldn't, um, is the tactical air control party. They wear a black beret and they're kind of somewhat similar to the Marine Corps forward air controller, but they're embedded in regular Army units. They would not be used in an Army Special Operations Unit, but um regular Army units to call in airstrikes. The Air Force Special Operations personnel, they almost all of them uh, well, all of them do hold initial parachute jump training and I think most of them hold free fall qualification too, so they can do halo or hay ho jumps. Uh, they are all dive qualified, and their selection course starts at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. <clears throat> a little personal story on that front, that when I was going through Lackland Air Force Base for basic training many years ago, well, they actually had a pararescue um, recruiter that came in, that they are having two, the hard time at the... Um, a difficult time filling slots in two specialties back then. One was for B-52 tail gunners, which were ultimately eliminated around 1990, and the other one was for the pararescue and I'd never heard of it, and they this pararescue men recruiter came in, and he showed us a video of what all they went through, and I'm not sure if they were successful in recruiting anyone from my uh, flight or not, but uh, anyway, it was the first time, like I said, I'd never heard of it. The pararescuemen, or PJs for short, that they do most of their training, uh, aside from parachute and dive training, at uh, Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico, where they take a paramedic course and then they do the pararescue recovery specialist course. It's nearly 11 months long, and like the special forces and uh, Navy amphibious um, medics, that they are, they hold an EMT paramedic certification. A little bit odd, it's uh, not going to go off on a tangent on this, but Kirtland Air Force Base also houses the Department of Energy's National Training Center. That At Kirtland, you have Sandia National Labs, which was heavily involved in our nuclear weapons program, but this National Training Center is for those people who work for the Department of Energy in a security field of of guarding our uh, facilities that... Have Department of Energy nuclear reactors or design facilities or areas where nuclear weapons are refurbished. So these people are not on the level of special operations personnel, but they have a number of, of tactical courses there as well as a, including a two week sniper course. And so people ask, well, do pararescue men use the Department of Energy facilities? You know, I would bet that they probably do. And the combat controllers, those are, you know, once again, they are like air traffic controllers that they do their training at Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi and they undergo just normal air traffic control training. Uh, after that, they do special tactics advanced skills training for about 12 to 15 months. So this way they can be inserted with a SEAL team or a, a special forces team and not embarrass themselves. And if a pararescueman is assigned to a, a special tactics team, such as the Air Force's 24th Special Tactics Squadron, then they'll receive the same training as the as the combat controllers will um, too. I think that takes us to the end of the uh, the Air Force section.
0: I can hardly tell a difference between crimson and scarlet and the maroon.
1: Of course all those guys will get up and you know up in arms if you Oh yeah if you talk that. Like, Well what are you talking about? that's oh, the most important beret ever. <laughs> and then of course, you know, the SEALs they don't have berets and neither do the uh, yeah. Marine Corps Force Reconnaissance yeah. or their special skills operators group. A lot of times uh wannabes love to sit around and talk about, you know, which unit is the best, like, oh no, Delta Force is better than the SEALs and the Force reconnaissance is better than this um, other unit, and uh, invariably or inevitably, I would say it comes down to the type of mission that's to be done. If it's a offshore oil production platform that's been hijacked, then SEAL Team Six would be the way to go. Um, if it's an air an airliner that's been taken captive or hostage, then I'd say Delta Force. If we had a had a war with the Soviet Union in Western Europe, then the Army Special Forces would have been the best for training rebels inside a Warsaw Pact. If you need to take and hold an airfield, well then call the Rangers. If you need to do an amphibious landing, the Marines. You got a downed pilot behind enemy lines, then call Air Force Pararescue. I think in terms of younger people who may be a little bit enchanted with these units and want to, you know, think, oh, it would be glamorous to be a part of them. Something they should keep in mind, um, and this isn't the only instance of where something like this has happened, but in Somalia 20 years ago, that the members of Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, and the Air Force pararescue men, while in Somalia, were given a toll of 32 square feet to themselves. That's four feet by eight feet. And that included their cots. And this was in an unair conditioned former hangar where pigeons defecated on them during the night. And, uh, you know, people think this doesn't sound like much fun. Well, I'm sure it wasn't, whereas the helicopter pilots, on the other hand, had air-conditioned trailers to stay in. So you know, people think they're going to join one of these units and, you know, have some, you know, fun time. They're not, you know, and they're probably going to come back with a guilty conscience if they don't come back maimed. I think that, um let's see what else, since we've gone on for a little bit over uh, two hours here. Yeah, let me just top them down to the uh, books and video section, and, and just cover that. That Wikipedia is a, a real excellent source of information on special operations and intelligence. It's it's kind of become like a Wikipedia has become a clearinghouse on a number of of fields, and I think when people have something interesting to mention um, on a particular group, that they'll enter it on Wikipedia instead of a forum. So someone who starts at Wikipedia could assemble a lot of the material that I have here. Also as well the Military Book Club carries a lot of titles pertaining to special operations and usually has them as soon as they as they come into print. The Soldier of Fortune Magazine is uh, used to be a great source for a lot of this kind of information, although it was not um, systematized. It was more like individual stories based on what people in different special operations units were doing, but the quality of, of Soldier of Fortune has really gone down a lot since the 1980s, and it's just, it just keeps getting worse with each year. Uh, in terms of books, so, um, special, uh, Secret Warriors Inside the Covert Military Operations of the Reagan Air by Stephen Emerson. Uh, that book discusses the Sea Spray helicopter unit in some detail. The Intelligence Support uh, Activity doesn't have a lot written on it, but one book that is dedicated to them is The Killer Elite, The Inside Story of America's Most Secret Special Forces Unit, and it's written by Michael Smith. Uh, another book that I've mentioned several times is Inside Delta Force by Eric Haney. I think it's really one of the best books of, the, of its genre. And unfortunately, I think uh, since he was a founding member of Delta Force and he got out of the Army in 1990, Unfortunately, because he comes off as looking much more balanced than a lot of the newer uh, riders, particularly a lot of the ex-SEAL riders, that I think people may get a false impression that a lot of the people in these uh, upper-tier special operation units are like him, and I don't believe they are. I think he's indicative of, the, of an earlier time in the military. Rogue Warrior was written by Richard Marcinko. He was the founder and first commanding officer of SEAL Team 6. Uh, A really wicked man, and I think people ought to read that to get some idea of what um, you know what the founding culture was of of SEAL Team Six. A book I mentioned a good bit in the first section, the Red Circle: My Life in the Navy SEAL Sniper Corps and How I Trained America's Deadliest Marksman by Brandon Webb. I think that will give you a good insight as to what basic SEAL teams are like now. Uh, Another one I mentioned, SEAL Team 6, Memoirs of an Elite Navy SEAL Sniper by Howard Wazden. I think Wazden is a Christian, but he's a a poorly informed one who needs a major dose of good doctrine. Black Hawk Down, which I've also mentioned by Mark Bowden, which was about our misadventures in Mogadishu. I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, Another book, which was, it looks like it's part of a Tom Clancy series. It isn't, he just lended his name because he did an interview in it with, um, I think, the head of the U.S. Special Operations Command, but the rest of the book is written by another man. But it's called uh, Special Forces A Guided Tour of U.S. Army Special Forces by John Gresham. I highly recommend it, and that's Gresham as in G R E S H A A M. I've uh, also mentioned a lot of these books I have already mentioned, but uh, to give a little more detail on it HBO's Generation Kill, that was in the Marine Corps section. The, the flick was shot in, uh, or the miniseries was shot in South Africa, Namibia, and Mozambique. Just beautifully shot, I thought, and well worth the time. Then there's the movie version of Black Hawk Down, which was filmed by Ridley Scott, and that's well worth watching. The Discovery Channel had a whole series on the Navy SEALs uh training called Navy SEALs Buds Class two three four. That's uh Navy SEALs BUDS Class two hundred thirty four. And it shows really, I think, a lot of the sadism, the really un you know, uncensored sadism that go- what goes on in basic SEAL training. There's Discovery Channels surviving the cut, which was um uh, had episodes on a number of different special operations training sessions. And then we had um, another flick called Jarhead, which was about a Marine Scout Sniper in the Iraq War. The Hurt Locker, which was directed by Catherine Bigelow, it received all kinds of uh, Academy Award recognition. It was about an explosive explosive ordnance team in Iraq, not um, you know not really considered special operations worthy, but uh, it is considered pretty gritty. And then there was zero dark 30, um, which I've mentioned, I think, twice at least, which was about the fake rate on, or about the real rate on the fake bin lot and compound. And with that, I, um are there any questions that people have asked that need to be addressed?
0: I don't see any questions in the chat room at this moment, but... I know everyone is taking notes, and this is going to be one of those podcasts that I'll need to go back and listen to. They're always better the second time because there's so many nuggets packed in there. In fact, I need to go back and listen to your last podcast you did here, Robert, because I haven't uh, taken all that in yet.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, Yeah, Unfortunately, there was a, a lot of material, you know, what I sent you. Uh, yesterday that I thought I would have time tonight and it's just I guess I, I talk a lot slower when we're actually doing this and uh, yeah,
0: and there's a lot
1: of things I was not able to cover tonight but we still ran in at two in two hours and ten minutes and, yeah
0: if there's anything you want to cover you know, in a few minutes you're welcome to do that because
1: <clears throat> I think we really covered I mean the basic okay. core of it I mean there's always you know rabbit holes you can venture into and, and talk about but I think this it,
0: I was just thinking you've this is your fifth time on the show. There's probably nine or ten hours of Robert Fingleton on, <laughs> on which was well, just good on the news. Uh, the uh,
1: last two subjects we ran I think at two ten on each yeah. one of them. so that's four hours Perfect. and twenty minutes and then uh yeah, I mean it's it's gotta be you know, I'd say you know, at least nine hours or yeah. pretty close to nine hours.
0: And you know that I'm grateful for every bit of it. You've done a lot to wake me up to a lot of these things regarding cops in general and military and i'm uh i'm a genuine hater now
1: well thank you i it's been a pleasure to cook these talks up i actually learned a lot by having to go through and you know systematize my own thoughts on this and looking up you know additional information this was probably you know in terms of a show this was the funnest one to prepare for i think in a lot of ways and I'm glad that you have know, done it now because, I mean, the wannabes are a real bad problem. And I get so weary of you running these people everywhere that they say, well, you know, a certain three-letter uh, group which I can't name. and Yeah. you know Well, go ahead and name them. Who are you talking about? <laughs> Those kind of people, they have just become ubiquitous, though. Yeah. And uh, we need, you know, it would be nice in a church setting to have just – you know, several Sundays of in a Sunday school setting perhaps where you could just go through in depth a lot of this and just, you know, where people cannot be talked down to so much by, you know, by liars and those who know a little bit of the knowledge and they try to, you know, make it a lot more than what they have and what they really know.
0: What do you, I have one question before we, we wrap up this, really this five-part series and what are your what's your take on what happened recently in D.C. where these cops basically executed a, unarmed woman for running through a army checkpoint.
1: It it seemed to me in a way, you know, um, more premeditated um, than a lot of your normal cop murders of where they, uh, they were trying to exercise control over some setting and they end up killing someone. I'm not sure if it was just because they were already jazzed up due to the you know, to the earlier shooting from what was it two or three weeks ago at the in Washington Naval Yard? Yeah, you know if that kind of led them in that way, or if it was more of um, if there was something a little bit more darker going on, it's it's kind of hard for me to say. uh you know, that this is the second sort of big thing that you've had happen in Washington D.C. in the last few weeks, and going back earlier in the century, you had the the sniper attacks that uh, took place, in, in uh, and yeah. they weren't in Baltimore. I would say it was—I think it was centered on the area, kind of between Washington D.C. and Baltimore, yeah. but you know, pretty close to Washington D.C. And I just wonder, particularly with the bad fallout from the Iraq War and the Afghan War, if increasingly you're not going to have just more and more people who are um, in the Washington D.C. area that that flake out the. Washington Naval Yard shooter, of course, was on a number of, of psychotropic drugs prescribed for him by a psychiatrist in the area. So this woman um, who was uh, basically ex- executed, I'm not sure you know, what everything, what all was in her her background. I'm hoping we'll actually get some good information on that in coming days. But as to what you know led them there, if if it, you know, it would be safe to say that at a minimum. It's the usual cop uh, overreaction to, um, to anything that they deem outside their area of control. But if it was something a little bit darker, where it was you know, a, a Washington P.D. policy that was uh, pushing them that anyone that looks like a terrorist at all take them down. Uh, that I think we may find something like that uh, happened in the days to come.
0: What was particularly disgusting is how the officials got on television and called them heroes and were so proud of the way the cops responded. And, you know, it's unfortunate that that she had to die. And and I, I think there's probably other ways of dealing with an unarmed woman that are non lethal, but let's say that they did need to do that. You might want to say something like, well, it's, it's unfortunate what happened and we'll move on. You don't need to be congratulating cops for killing this unarmed woman, uh, unarmed woman and calling them heroes. And basically just, slobbering over them it was pretty pretty disgusting to see that
1: you have this kind of level of um, public religion that you can never question that just about everyone who's an elected official buys into where you can't speak bad of the troops and you can't speak bad of first responders particularly um, particularly cops and we had here locally a uh, the mayor of Wiley, Texas, who came out giving a, a kudos article in the local Jews paper um, about a week and a half ago about cops, like what all we should do to show our appreciation of them. And this is a part of the, I wouldn't say just the American civic religion, that you find it pretty much throughout the world. And it was really bad in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But in Europe right now, you find something you know halfway similar as well, too. And I think a lot of the times it comes down to this orgy to see who can outpraise the other one, uh, the first responders and the troops. It kind of like with the, with the Democratic Party in, in 2008 when they were going to run Kerry against, um no, in 2004 when they were running Kerry against Bush. And so you had this whole thing about, uh, you know, Kerry reporting for duty and where they were trying to outwar or are out-militarized Bush, and of course, you know the, the major wars of the 20th century that the U.S. fought in—World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam—were all started by uh, by Democrats. But then, after Vietnam, the Republicans really took over the war banner. Well, then in 2004, with that presidential election, the Democrats are really trying to pull the war banner back, and with Obama, to some extent, I think they've been a little bit successful that. Granted, you know, he didn't start any wars in the scale of <clears throat> um, Bush's action in Iraq or Afghanistan, but he, you know, he was doing his damnedest to try to start World War III over Syria. Oh, yeah. And then there was our action in Libya, and then there's still, you know, the issue of Iran, of you know whether or not that'll come to fruition or not. So I think he's been a little bit successful in that. But where each side now, each side now, and I think this goes back somewhat to hyper-masculinity and the, and the problem of the masculine religion where each side has to show that, you know, well, no, I'm more warlike than you are and no one wants to be considered, um, you know, a softy or a sissy for saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe you shouldn't have killed that unarmed woman with that child in that car. Maybe you could have used, uh, you know, a bing bag gun or, or maybe not even that. Uh, you know, to say that makes it sound like you're soft on terrorism or soft on crime, and that's a brush that most people are not willing to be painted with. And you know, Ron Paul was one of the few people, despite his flaws, of where he was willing to come out and at least tackle that issue in part. But for most people who really are not interested in in theology or policy or any kind of uh, intellectual life that it's just easier for them to say, you know, wave the flag and say, rah, rah, I love America, and that, you know, I support the cops and I support the military more than you do. And so then you get into this Mexican standoff of the other guy, no, I support them more than you do. And so it becomes a a race to the bottom of of who can, you know, Mm -hmm. have the biggest orgiastic display of, of support for the troops and the policemen, but... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see long term what um, what can be found out about this incident. I think people really, sh- unless they have some business that takes them there, that they should stay out of Washington D.C. If at all possible. You know, I realize that the Smithsonian has some um, some interesting displays, and it is a heck of a museum. But probably best to stay out of that area, you know, for the forecoming years, unless you have something that really takes you into that area because that's like going into the heart of Mordor in many ways and it's it's best just to avoid the company of evil people if at all possible.
0: I agree. I've often wondered why cops always have to initiate a high speed chase when that puts the public at greater risk and they're supposed to be public safety personnel. If, if you know the person's license plate why not just catch her at home and find out why she was running from you or uh, typically, it's a it's a guy who has some, some pot in his car, and so the cops will initiate a high speed chase. The guy will wreck into a tree and kill himself, or something bad's going to happen when you're chasing somebody who's fleeing. And
1: that used to be kind of department policy that you know that years ago that they would not engage right. in a high speed chase, particularly in larger cities like Washington D.C., where they have helicopter units that. Uh, mm-hmm. They could radio, you know, radio in the coordinates and then the helicopter could pursue them and then you, know, you keep, you know, kind of tabs on through the street. But I think there's just the adrenaline rush of a high speed chase yeah. and they're going to, you know, the cops are going to say, well, I thought they were engaged in terrorist activity right. or something like that mm-hmm. where they can justify it. And, um, and pretty much at this point, I think most cops, uh, realize nothing will happen to them. In a high speed chase, unless they crash the car and kill themselves or someone else, which you know does happen uh, from time to time, and so yeah, I, yeah, once again, I think they're just you know it's the adrenaline junkie aspect takes over. They're not going to you know, turn down the chance to to do something like that. Uh, just shows once again, like you're saying, where they were considered peace officers at one time, and I don't really think that's been true now for a number of decades, but. Certainly, you know, high-speed chases really do put the public at, at risk. And for what, as you're saying, you know, well, because the, you know, the guy's drunk, or yeah, you know, he's had one too many tickets, so he panics and floors it, thinking he'll get away, or he's, you know, he's got some drugs in his car and he's hoping to, you know, get further enough ahead or pull off on an exit where he'll have time to ditch his stash. And you know, so is it really worth putting all the people at risk, uh, you know, for that? You know, well, no, not really. But these are, you know, two-digit IQ types that really can't um, can't think through anything like that. And then you have the whole messianic ego trip that figures right. in as well, too, that they're going to save America from crime or terrorism or, or whatever the evil is we're crusading against today.
0: They're just – they're trigger-happy. And as Will Grigg always says, they are – they treat you – they treat all citizens like they are either active or incipient criminals. You are <laughs> – you are not them. And so they're after you. If, uh, if they can't kill you, you're a source of revenue.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where they, you know, they like calling us civilians and, you know, last I checked, the policemen were not members of the military. And (laughs) I think once again, if we're uh, at least going to even a a partial model where the, where the police were only part time and and say like the way that firemen, um, or where they're on duty at a station, but where they they don't go out looking for fires; <laughs> they only respond to That's fires. Right. And if you had, even if we're going to have patrol officers, but let's just say they stayed in a, you know, at some police dispatch station and waited for a call, then they're not out stirring up business. And it's it's rather odd the whole way the police issue is handled is so radically different from. From the fire departments, where you know the firemen don't drive around like, well, we're looking for fires to put out. Well, you know, once there is a fire, you'll find out about it very quickly. And the same thing with cops. As a matter of fact, I think if you know a cop is in the area and he just, you know, you see him passing you or whatever, like, okay, well now it's time I can do something about. You know, I can, you know, enact a crime or whatever. Uh, It's a terrible system, and I don't foresee it getting fixed. But I think people do need to think about what would be more of an ideal. System than what we have now, because when America does fall apart, uh, you know we need then's not the time to start exploring new ideas. That the person that has the ideas in their head already and can point to books or programs or papers, they are going to have a much better chance of getting their agenda through than someone says. Well, let's go commission a two-year study on the subject. No, you got some guy that's already been thinking about this for years and has written about it oh okay well that makes sense plus the fact too in the in the coming order we're not going to have the money to burn that we do now and um, cost efficiency will be something that will be forced back upon us again and we will not be able to have you know one policeman for every 250 people or one policeman for every 500 people and I'm hoping we can really get something like a you know like a posse again and, yeah. and really abandon the idea of a full-time law enforcement, uh, generally speaking, because it's just it's been a, a terrible thing. I mean, it's you know probably one of our top ten problems is the you know the law enforcement state.
0: Agreed, completely agreed. Well, thanks again, Robert. Any last comments?
1: No, I think that wraps it up for me.
0: Yeah, it's been it's been fun having you on the show four or five times, and we'll have to keep in touch. And thanks for everybody who participated in the chat room. And that was the wrong. uh piece of music. How about this one? (laughs) We'll see you guys next time.